Hi, thank you for listening to this episode. And in case you didn't know, it means the world to me that you're here. So first, before we get started, I'd like to just apologize because I know I haven't posted a new episode in over a month. Admittedly, quarantine really took a toll on my mental health in the beginning. And so I took a step back for about a month to just focus on writing that ship in my mind. And through amazing support from my family and a lot of introspection, I'm happy to say that things have really turned around for me. I hope that everyone out there is staying safe and know that it's okay to not be okay during this extremely stressful time. If you need to talk, no matter how well we know each other, please know that you can reach out to me. I will listen. So if you don't have my phone number, send me a Facebook message or email me. It's daltontitshaw at gmail.com. T-I-T-S-H-A-W. Now, about my guest. I adore Scott Peeler. He is one of the most caring, hardworking, one of the funniest people I know. In this episode, he provides great insight into theater and life that will make you laugh and also think. I learned a lot of things from talking with Scott, and I hope you do too. Just so you know, this was recorded around mid-February, and so the world's changed just a bit since then. So a couple things that we talk about might be a little outdated. For instance, one being the Houston Astros cheating scandal. But all the same, it's a great listen. And if you want to turn it into a drinking game, drink every time that I say I was honored. <laughs> Please drink responsibly. All right, on to the episode. With me is one of my greatest friends, a director friend of mine. He does many things, a man of many talents, many facts, really great man. His name is Scott Peeler. I'm really excited to have him. Thank you so much for being with me, Scott. I need to meet a talented man. I need to meet this guy. He sounds fascinating. <laughs> well, then who is with me right now? I am. I'm. They just told me to show up. I'm here. Uh, well, um, you're just gonna have to do. Okay. Well, I'll I'll, I'll muddle through. <laughs> How are you, Dalton? I'm great. Uh, I'm really excited to have you. It's, I've really been looking forward to this episode. Oh, this is this this is fun, and uh, you know, I'm at an uh, an exciting week, so it's nice to just take a little downtime uh, and. You may hear my cup during the, during this. I, I, I'm drinking throat coat tea because I have a big performance on Friday. So yeah. I'm trying to take care of the voice. So. Oh, a few things unpacked there. So first thing, you're the person who got me onto throat coat tea. Uh, well, Back there when, we go. Yeah, when we were doing Harvey, the first uh, show that we ever did together, um, I remember right the week before um, when we were doing Tech Week, you you got us all on to d- uh, drinking throat coat to protect yeah. our throats. I'm still waiting for the uh, the residual checks from traditional medicinals, but they don't seem to be coming. <laughs> that that stuff is not cheap. It's like no. five 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 fifty uh, per yeah, box. Yeah, you got to get Amazon. It's your friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So um, okay, you said you had an exciting week. You want to talk about that? Tell yeah, that. actually, um, I wrote my first uh, full length play. Call this is acid tongue. Acid tongue, yeah. It's um, uh, those of you who don't know me, I was a radio announcer back in uh, when I used to have to ride my dinosaur to the radio station, <laughs> and I wrote this ninety-minute show. It takes place in a late at a late-night talk show. Uh, the show is the show it, within the show is called the Dark Truth, and the host is Jerry Dark, and yes, that's his real name, Jerry Dark, and. I was messing with it. The idea came to me while I was mowing the lawn. I have no idea why. Wow, really? (laughs) Were you in a dark place? It must have been. There was shade. I don't know. (laughs) Um, But uh, Becca Parker, who is the artistic director at Live Arts Theater Mm -hmm. in Norcross, Georgia, uh, she said they were doing their annual February reading series, which they the first two years ago, two years back, they did uh, nine of the 10 August Wilson plays. Uh, last year they did female playwrights and then they said this year they're going to do Georgia playwrights and I said well I'm working on something mm-hmm. 
And she said, if you can get it done by February, we'll do it. I said, okay. And that gave me the incentive to, do, to finish it. I remember it, it meant a lot to me because um, I came over for your help with um, breaking down a script that I had just mm-hmm. gotten for mm-hmm. uh, a part that I, I just landed in this play called Two Across that I did last February right. uh, a year ago. And, um, and I really appreciated that you helped me find that character because I only had 11 days oh, to boy. memorize a 90-minute show and put it on. Oh, and boy. so I was very stressed. And so I needed as much – I needed someone to give me the confidence that I could go into it because – most of my time was spent because I had a full-time job. I was working at the gym. Right. And so uh, the any free chance and free time that I had, I was trying to memorize that script. And so breaking down the character was almost, it fell by the wayside because I just had to get the lines down. Right. And so it meant a lot that I was able to come over and you helped me. And then you gave me a nice surprise as well. You said, well, while you're here, I'm going to need your help. I want you to read through this, uh, this what I have so far. Right. And it was and like we, 10 or 15 minutes at that point. Wasn't yeah. It? Yeah. It it, how, how many minutes is it now? It's, uh, let's see, we just we had our last rehearsal. It's about 95 minutes long. Wow, yeah. You definitely <laughs> you have a lot more. I'm, I'm excited. And that's this weekend? Uh, it's, it's Friday, the 21st of February. Okay, so just one night. Just one night. It's a staged reading one time, and uh, kind of, you know, here's the world premiere, and we're going to do it as a staged reading. Of course, it's me. So I'm sort of expanding the definition of staged reading. Since it's set in a radio station on a talk show, I needed callers. Okay. So I decided to put them into the sound plot. So for a staged reading, I have a sound plot with 185 cues. (laughs) (laughs) Only Scott Peeler. (laughs) But it sounds really, really good. And I've got a cross-section of people from um, Atlanta Metro Community Theater, from uh, McKendree United Methodist Church, where I kind of honed my craft for years, still my home church, um, from uh, Black on Both Sides, which we'll talk about. There's some people in there. Mm -hmm. So there are all all these various callers from across the nation talking talking to Jerry. Oh my gosh, that's great. So um, you incorporated uh, other people to be the callers and they're going to come on and that's right. amazing. Yeah. And, so, I, and did I see that uh, you cast, you, it, it's just a cast of two people. Yeah, it's, it's uh, as, as presented, it's two live human beings and then 15 others, actually 17 the, others in the sound plot. Right, yeah, as the callers. Yeah. So uh, the other person that you cast to read with you is Kat, right? Kat, Kat Rondo, who... Uh, Perfect casting. And it's a cheat on my part because yeah. Kat was in radio as well. Oh, right. And I will be I forgot per- about that. perfectly honest. I am, I am not above cheating because I didn't want to have to teach an actor what it was to be in a studio. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a one-time reading, I have, and we're, you, know, you only rehearse a couple times for these things. So I wanted somebody who could come in and know what it was cold to be in a radio studio. And that's Kat. And I actually, ca- I actually cast her off of the strength of an earlier performance of hers, which was... Um, same theater live arts did a a wonderful production of Evelyn in Purgatory. Yes, I uh, I was blessed to be able to go see it. I, I saw it. I was there. The same, yeah, I think we were there at the we same, were there at the same time. And yeah. Not to spoil the play for anybody who hasn't seen it, but what Cat did at the end of that convinced me that she could be Donna Walker. And I can't spoil anything about Acid Tongue, but sure, you'll if you've seen, if you've seen Evelyn and you see Acid Tongue, you'll understand why Cat made the jump. And I should say the character's name, Donna Walker, is a tribute to one of my students. Um, for three years, I was a uh, I was a high school drama director at a uh, Christian school in Gwinnett County, mm-hmm. and one of my students is this delightful human being named uh, Marie Walker, mm-hmm. and Marie is if. If anybody is familiar with the reenactor community in Atlanta, Marie is the go-to costuming woman in Atlanta. 
I mean, she's still a college student, but she, her knowledge of vintage clothing, her knowledge of the Civil War era is well beyond her years. And years ago, while I was at the school, I directed a one-act show with her in the lead, and the show is called A Children's Story. It's by James Clavell, who, for those of you of a certain age, <laughs> will remember the 80s sprawling miniseries, things like Shogun and Noble House, um, these things that were always on ABC for eight nights in a row. But James Clavell wrote these big, sprawling Asian novels. He also wrote a little short story that got published in Reader's Digest called A Children's Story. And in A Children's Story, it takes place literally the day after America has fallen to a communist superpower. And it's a 40-minute real-time show of the first day in a fifth-grade classroom when the new teacher is re-educating the students. And by re-educating, we mean tearing down every pillar of American society in front of them. Oh, man. And, okay. And the character's name is Irina. And Marie played Irina. And this was a high school kid in a high school production. And I am not kidding. And I've said this publicly. You can go check my Facebook posts. <laughs> It was one of the greatest villain performances I've seen. And I said, I'm holding it up there with Michael B. Jordan's Killmonger and, and Thanos. I mean, it's she was that good because like all the great villains, she was convinced that she was the hero of the story. And so that's, you know, it was a little bit, of course, the show, the, the play will already been up by the time this, this hits, uh, hits broadcast. So you'll understand why I named Donna after this great, this actress, because she just did such a great villain. She also played a great villain in uh, uh, Three Musketeers for me. So I'm like, I, I had to, I had messaged her. I said, Marie, would you mind if I named my name Donna Walker, who's hero or villain, we're not sure, but I'd like to name her after you. And she said, I'd be honored. Oh my, I, <laughs> I feel like that is up there with naming your child after someone. <laughs> <laughs> you named a character after me. That would yep. be yeah. uh, such a great feeling. So that's, how did she take it? She loved it. And she loved it. Yeah, I'm sure. Is she going to be able to come see yeah, the show? Yeah, she's going to come see, come see oh, the show. Excellent. So that's um, cool. So, uh, so you said that you, you thought about acid tongue while you were in, uh, while you were mowing the lawn. Yeah. And so then you started uh, working on it. And did you feel any any like pressure once you realized you had to get it out by the February? Do you it feel was, like it you was rushed a good, it? It was a good pressure. I'm one of those people, and it may go. It goes back to my radio days. If I don't have a deadline, odds are it's not getting done. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm I'm not all that disciplined. But as a, a former associate of mine once said, I'm always in rescue mode. If something needs to be done, then I will do it. Mm -hmm. Get get it done and. This put a very real deadline on things and forced me to get into writing it. And I'm one of those people, I'm a writer who can't, I have trouble just sitting down. I'm going to write for 20 minutes. I'm going to write for half an hour. Things distill in my head. And then when they come out, they just flood. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of how, how that got written. And having the deadline made it happen, knowing you better get this done in time for them to put up the announcement. <laughs> yeah and and it did so it worked out well it turned into it was interesting the uh the character of jerry wrote himself after a while he started off as a much larger jerk than he ended up being i remember the when yeah. i was reading with you he was, he was a big time nasty. jerk <laughs> um he's still i always tell people he's uh he's one of those people who half of the things he says you're going to want to kill him and half of the things you're going to wonder uh why he's not running for president because he, he'd do a great job yeah um and 
it wound up being an odd commentary on a few things. It started out inspired by the Me Too movement, and then it became sort of a dark commentary on cancel culture. And he grew out of a, part, a lot of people I know. Um, I even told my father point blank there's a lot of him in it. Um, but I grew up in New Hampshire, and do you know what New Hampshire's license plate motto is? Oh, uh Oh, no. I Live free or, or die. Yes, yeah, I knew it. I knew that because you've mentioned that to me yeah, many a times. A little, <laughs> little extreme. But um, the New Hampshire is kind of a libertarian state, and Jerry's a libertarian. And also informed by another one of my best friends growing up in New Hampshire who made me realize early on that part of the problem we have today, whatever side of the fence you're on, is we label we disagree. You're a this. You're a that. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to throw the labels out. You know, you're this. Yeah. But my friend, who was a retired EMT, told me this, and it really just woke me up to listen to the entirety of people and not just paint them with a broad brush. Very, he's very conservative politically. Very conservative, like traditional conservative. And he he told me once that he was very pro-choice, and I said that doesn't really fit with most of your political views. And he said, Yeah, I know but I'm not putting a bleeding 14-year-old girl in the back of my ambulance. And that just got me to thinking. The idea that we try to slot people into having to have this, this prefab set of views is ridiculous. And that's Jerry. Jerry's views are all over the place. <laughs> yeah. Because he's thought about each one from his personal perspective. I like to say, you know, look, I know very liberal people who enjoy hunting. Why? Because they're environmentalists and they enjoy good meat. <laughs> so... <laughs> That's where acetone kind of came from, and it very, it very much materialized into, um, into, into those comments. Even though it didn't start out that way, it just wound up that way. Wow. Um, do you, um, do you share a lot of his opinions, or like do you... some of them? Mm-hmm. Um, not all of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them I think he's overstating. Some of them I agree wholeheartedly with. Um, he definitely has my sense of humor. <laughs> I, I remember I could tell that uh, so that that was uh, essentially my, my question is is um, is a lot of it to do with your what you want to tell the world or is it more just you started writing and you saw this entertaining piece that you could kind of speak at least on to um, what's yeah, happening yeah I think it's 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 it, it, I try not to make it a lecture um, that's good okay tr- try yeah. to make people think because and actually I learned that lesson from the oddest of sources and that's uh, Phil Vischer, who was the creator of Veggie Tales. Okay. <laughs> that is an odd yeah, choice. That's, uh, and which is about as far removed from acid tongue as you can get. But Phil Vischer <laughs> used to say that they, their theme for Veggie Tales was what would happen if Monty Python took over your Sunday school? <laughs> okay. And that they, actually makes a lot of it sense. It does. It really makes sense when you think about it. But he said, our, our job, and this is funny, and a lot of, you know, some people would, would say, are you kidding? You know, this is Christian. Da, da, da. He said, our job number one is to entertain. And un- unless it's entertaining, we can't deliver any message we want to. Because frankly, most media that starts with, I am now going to teach you my viewpoint, is garbage. Because it's a lecture. If I want a lecture, in fact, this is a line from Acid Tongue. If I wanted a le- and Jerry, I have to do Jerry's voice. Yeah, of going, course. Look, if I wanted a lecture, I'd turn on a TED Talk. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> I like that a lot. Um, wow, that's 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 a really interesting viewpoint that you have, and you're totally right. I feel like that um, nowadays when I'm watching movies, even now, like big time Hollywood Hollywood budget movies, 
I feel like I'm getting told how to think mm-hmm. uh, a, a lot of times. And, and, it, and I feel like it's a part of this whole cancel culture idea and um, these Me Too movements and everything. And I'm not saying I'm against them or that they're wrong. I just don't, I want when I go see a movie, I want to enjoy the movie right. and take the message that if, it, if there's a message there, if, it, if there's meant to be a message, I like to come to that myself. Right. And it feels a lot of times like it's being bashed over my head. And that's and that's bad storytelling because you can tell a story even if it's a story that's not that the audience watching is not you that you can understand it. We'll we'll probably we'll talk later um, the web series that you and I have both been involved in, mm-hmm. uh, Black on Both Sides with Alanje Haas. You know, Alanje is talking primarily to a black audience. I'm an integral part of that show, but I get what he's saying. Yeah, it's same. a story that's not my experience. Mm-hmm. But he's such a talented storyteller. I'm going to sit back and listen. Why is this character this way? Why are they going through this? This is something I haven't experienced. And when I say I haven't experienced, I'm from New Hampshire. People don't believe me when I say this. New Hampshire is whiter than Utah. Wow, really? Literally. Did, did, growing up, did you have any um, any African-American people? Uh, we had one family in school. And then I went to a private school one town over, and there were a couple of people in from New York City. But literally, the joke my wife and I has is we never developed any particular racist attitudes because we didn't have any racists to, to judge. Yeah. I mean, right. literally everybody around us looked like we did. Huh. And when we met new people who didn't look like we did, it was like, oh, well, here's a new person. Yeah. But literally, it, it's that, which, you know, we, we've just come through the New Hampshire primary, which is I kind of understand the criticism of the New Hampshire primary because New Hampshire does not look like America. I love the state dearly, and I will defend it, and if you badmouth it, I will hit you. <laughs> but it's an odd place to grow up. Yeah, I but it know. does it does instill you with some interesting concepts, and including a lot of what goes on in acid tongue, which is taking stock of your actions, being responsible for your actions. Um, one of the theories that sort of informs what's going on in acid tongue is, I really think that if you grow up rural or grow up urban, that that's actually where a lot of the divide in America starts, because if you grow up urban through no fault of your own. You have to have things done for you. You don't go to the dump. You have someone pick your trash up mm-hmm. and take it away. I grew up going to the dump. Mm-hmm. Throw it in the back of the car or the truck, take it to the dump. Little things like that. So self-reliance, people talk in, in rural areas, like, well, we're self-reliant and you people in the city aren't. Those people in the city can't be. Yeah, it's not really their faults. Yeah. What, what are you going to do? Grow? I mean, yeah, you can do a little window box garden, maybe some mm. herbs and a couple of peppers. It's not exactly like you can lay in corn, peas, and squash. In fact, it's <laughs> uh, it's pretty much illegal in, in a lot of places if you try to do it on even on your front lawn. Yeah, it's, it's insane. That's why they have community gardens and whatnot. Right. But this idea of growing up rural and that self-reliance, because you have to. Mm. It's not you're any better. There's no choice. Yeah, but I, I will, and I completely agree with you. That's a really good point. I find that people who are from rural areas are tougher, and and that doesn't mean that someone who's grow, who grew up in an urban area. I grew up in the suburbs, and I personally don't feel like I'm an incredibly tough person. And I didn't realize that until uh, college kind of kicked my ass. Mm-hmm. And then I, I after that, I had to realize, oh, okay, life is going to be hard. I need to toughen up. And I found myself wishing that I had been toughened up when I was younger, and kind of resenting my suburban. Uh, right. roots and th- there's no one to blame for that that's just that's those were the cards that I was dealt and I certainly had 
a rather easy life. I was able to go to the doctor when I was sick. Right. I always had running water. I never had, in, you know, I, I did the Boy Scouts so that I could find out what living out <laughs> in the woods and rural was like. I, I wanted to, you know, get get out there. So um, and it's, I just found that people who are from those areas tend to be tougher. They tend to have more uh, willpower, and it's because they have to have that self-reliance. And, and, and it's interesting. And in an area where I really think it comes down to, and I've had art, and I, I tell this to people, and people on both sides of the argument get mad at me which is rural or urban tends to, and this is, I know this is a very controversial issue. I don't want to go down this rabbit hole, but sure. um, for firearms. Where I grew up, a firearm is a legitimate tool. It keeps critters out of the garden. You can hunt with it to get deer, you know, for meat on the table. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is a source of recreation. I spent time going out in the back target shooting. and But in a city... Realistically speaking, a firearm has one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to injure or kill a human being. Now, you can call that self-defense. That's fine. But let's unpack self-defense. Self-defense is firing a weapon at another human being. The other things I mentioned, gardening, hunting, and recreation, are not really available in the middle of a city unless you go to a shooting range for recreation. So just that idea of rural versus urban is going to inform you very, very differently. I'm not saying one's right, one's wrong. I'm saying it gives you a different perspective. Hmm. That's, I, I like that um, perspective. That's something that I try to always um, instill in my own life is, is seeing, is essentially putting yourself in the other person's shoes. And that's why it's hard for me politically. I, I don't get too far into my own political views because I don't exactly know what they are because right. I can see both sides. That, that's uh, the I, curse. Of my, I have a good friend of mine, um, Michael, lives out in Vegas. And he once told me the curse of the intelligent human being is the ability to see both sides. Wow. Yeah. That's, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sitting here calling myself intelligent per se, but I, I, it definitely does feel like a curse because sometimes I wish that I could just pick a side. But then I, at the same time, I feel like I'm closing off right. everything. That, that, that is literally me saying that the other side is wrong. So uh, w- if I ever get mad over any sort of subject, it's because I do true, truly wholeheartedly believe in it. Right. But there are people that I see, especially on the internet, thing, who get mad over almost everything because they've ch- chosen these sides. And, and that, that, it, that sort of, it honestly kind of bothers me. It, to each their own, and I'm not telling them that they're right. wrong or right. I just, that I wish that more people would take the time to be more open-minded and see um, that they might not be right a hundred percent, like yeah, they see, think and, they and are. And that's that's where um, you know that's where my dad influenced uh, the character of Jerry and Acetone a whole lot. And one of my dad's philosophies is, "Your right to swing your fist ends at my face." <laughs> the trouble is today, especially on the internet, you know, people have defined their face as a fifty-mile radius around their body. Yeah, you know, does it actually affect you? Okay. And my, another thing, and another thing that informs Jerry from Acetone, another one of my dad's things is, my dad is one of those people who genuinely doesn't care what people do, whatever you do. However, the minute it touches his pocketbook, it is going to be a topic of conversation. Yeah, <laughs> sure, yeah. Now, the funny thing is, you've met my dad. Uh, r- remind me when. Um, my dad came to the final performance of Our Town. Oh, my gosh. And was he, and your mom too, right? My stepmom. Your stepmom and did I? Your brother was supposed to come, right? Yeah, but he, he couldn't make it. Yeah, yeah. my uh, and it was funny because for those of you who know Our Town, um, the stage manager character makes mention, and we and we meet one of the uh, selectmen 
of the town. And my dad is actually a selectman. Really? What, yeah. is, what does he do? What yeah, is a selectman, selectman is uh, small town government in New England, New Hampshire particularly. It's uh, here in Georgia, we'd call it a commissioner. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Same type of role. Mm-hmm. But yeah, my dad is one of three selectmen in the, the little tiny town that he lives in. And uh, so when I when we were doing Our Town, I was doing the curtain speech beforehand, I said, and just to, for accuracy, I brought a, a real live New Hampshire selectman here to, <laughs> to see Our Town. And that was actually um, when uh, one of my actors got one of the best compliments ever, um, Charles Bohannon. We yeah, worked with him a couple and of times. And I was thinking about Charles because when you said the stage manager, that was one of the best performances yeah, uh, well, from his fellow actor on stage that I've ever seen. Yeah, it was a Charles pleasure to act with him. He's going to come on and be a guest here. Oh, fabulous. And uh, a little over, he has a, um, a show going on right now um, that he's um, working on. So after that, he's going to come on. So I'm excited to have him. Well, Charles um, is great with accents and when I was directing Our Town, I, I'm, I'm a deep granite stater. And I said, I know everybody says Our Town is universal, but we're going to, and you were there, you know, I'm going to, yeah. we're going to set this in New Hampshire. I'm going to tell you all about New Hampshire. My cast knew more about New Hampshire than any human being in Georgia should ever know. Oh, yeah. I still have the <laughs> magnet that we got that says Our Town, and it has right. uh, it, uh, 2016, it has the picture of the yeah, house but, on it. And that's actually, the, uh, that church and the house are in the town where my dad's a selectman. I'm not... Wouldn't have it any other way. And, um, so, yeah, you were saying? And so, Charles, I said, if you want to try and do a New Hampshire accent, I said, go study this man. There's a gentleman. And, and, and if you're into accents, folks, go look up a gentleman by the name of Fritz Weatherby. Okay. Fritz Weatherby is a – well, uh, we, we actually call him a lifestyle or features reporter these days. But he's been on a broadcaster in New England for years, in New Hampshire specifically. And Fritz actually still possesses a traditional New Hampshire accent, which, like most accents in America, is a dying accent. But it's not Boston, so it's not like Goodwill Hunting. It's not Maine. But uh, if I were to do New Hampshire, New Hampshire sounds kind of like this. And Fritz sounds about like that. And uh, a lot of things, um, we, if, if there's a word that ends in ER, it's going to be ah. Uh, we take away those ahs. But if there's a word that ends in A, like my stepmom, her name is Edna. But in proper New Hampshire pronunciation, it would be Edna. Mm. She'd be, and her last name is, is like mine, is Peeler. So the proper New Hampshire pronunciation of Edna Peeler would be Edna Peeler. <laughs> so at any rate I told Charles to go look up Fritz and Fritz comes back and he does it and my stepmom is at the final you said Fritz comes back you mean Charles comes back Charles comes back mm-hmm. at, you know having watched Fritz and he does it and he pegs it and so my stepmom is at the last performance and I went up to her afterwards and I said so uh, Edna what you, would you think of Charles and he sounded just like my father <laughs> what a compliment <laughs> So, yeah, so Charles, yeah, Charles is a great, anybody in the Atlanta area, if you ever see a the, uh, theatrical production that Charles Bohannon is involved in, go see it. He's phenomenal. Yes, absolutely. He's also a member of one of Atlanta's uh, iconic performance groups. Yeah, he's a, uh, he, he, the, the Seed and Feed Marching Abominables. <laughs> that sounds, I, I love them already. I actually haven't heard them, though, but yeah, I know the, he's part of them. Seed and Feed Marching Abominables, they're a psychotic, showy marching band. Uh-huh. Um, it's, Do you know what he plays? He plays a I bunch think, of instruments, right? I, I want to say he's either trumpet or t- I think he's I think he's a trombone player actually. I, yeah, I, I that, could be wrong. I could be wrong. Sounds there. About right. But trivia: six degrees of separation. <laughs> there, uh, back in the early '90s, um, Amy Ray of the Indigo Girls, on her uh, when they started their own record label, Damon Records, they did a album called "Jesus Christ Superstar: A Resurrection," and it was "Jesus Christ Superstar" with a bunch of local Atlanta musicians. Um, Amy played Jesus, actually did a great job. And Emily from Indigo Girls was Mary Magdalene. Mm-hmm. 
phenomenal job on both ladies' parts, and they got on all these other people to do the other roles. But the Seed and Feed Marching Abominables are on that album, and Charles plays on that album. Oh, no way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. I, I I love when things like that happen, where it's like a small world, and you come across, you meet people who were in things that you, um, you know, you thought that only you would know about, right? And then you meet them in real life. That was, and, and that actually um, happened with me, with uh, with us. Um, uh, one of my favorite members of the gym, a guy named Bill Hart, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. amazing man. Every time he came in, we would have fantastic conversations. Yep. Uh, rode a, he rides a bike, like a motorcycle, yep. real yep. cool guy, and he's uh, an amazing guitarist. And at yeah, the time, yeah, I don't know if he still does, but at the time he was teaching at the Atlanta School, the Atlanta, Atlanta Institute of Music. He was yeah. the head of the guitar yeah, department. He's not anymore, but he was the head of AIM's guitar department for years. Yeah, and so I, I knew him, and um, and then when we did Our Town, didn't he? He made the the, the music for Our Town, right? No, he made the music for Godspell. Godspell, that's it. Yeah, My, yeah. It was Godspell soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. I remember, and when you you brought him up, and we had never discussed. I mean, how would we? Right. You know, hey, there's this guy named Bill Hart. Maybe you know him. But then when you when you brought him up, and you're like, yeah, I got this uh, amazing guy who did the music for Godspell. He'd actually done it in the, before too. Yeah. Right? Um, actually, uh, McKendry United Methodist commissioned his yeah. soundtrack, and I've got to keep rights to use it, which mm-hmm. is cool. Uh, yeah, uh, shameless plug here. Bill Hart, H-A-R-T, BillHartMusic.com. Look him up. Um, mm-hmm. I am a guitar junkie, and I can honestly tell you that uh, Bill has one of the five greatest guitar tones I've ever heard. His tone is just gorgeous and wonderful, wonderfully fluid jazz player. He's uh, fusion. He's it, It's not cool jazz because you know it actually has some oomph, some bite to it. But Bill's an incredible, incredible player, and he's just one of those guys. Mm-hmm. Just your average laid-back Canadian dude. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm not surprised to know that he's Canadian now. Yeah, he's great. Um, uh, when we were, uh, when I was at the gym, he needed, uh, like, he needed, uh, one of his payments didn't go through um, because he switched cards or something. And I loved him so much. I was just like, hey, you know what? Don't even worry about it. I'm just going to waive this payment. Just give me back next month. Right. And he was so grateful for that. And then uh, the next week he came in and I'm in the office, I'm doing some administrative work or whatever, looking down at my desk and I just hear a knock on my door and I look up and it's Bill and I'm, I immediately am like 10 times happier. You know, oh, it's Bill. Hey, man. And he goes, hey, man, I just wanted to thank you for um, helping me out with that payment last month. Here you go. And he gives me a, a $30 uh, copy of a couple of his albums. Oh, cool. Yeah, in like a two-disc set. Nice. And, um, and so I listened to that for weeks. After. That was the only thing I listened to <laughs> in my truck. So I can attest to how good this man is at guitar. And I believe his band was the Bill Hart Band. Or, yeah, or Bill Hart Project. He calls Project, it yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, and so I, I listened to that. Uh, I still have that CD, actually, uh, those two CDs that are in my truck outside. So And it's uh, funny about the things that happened through that. And I've known Bill for years, and um, he knows a lot of people in jazz. And it's hilarious because thanks to him, I have one of the oddest credits on my resume ever. Really? What is that? There is an Italian jazz percussionist named Cecilia Sancietti. Oh, okay. And Bill knows Cecilia. And Cecilia was doing an, and had done an album. And she had her liner notes. And of course, this is a native Italian speaker trying to write an English set of liner notes. And Bill sends them to me. He's like, Scott, can you help? Because <laughs> it was okay. And I got to, to basically wordsmith her stuff. So I actually have a credit on an Italian jazz percussionist album. <laughs> wow, that one should be bolded in your resume. <laughs> so um, 
I want to bring it back to acid acid tongue. Sure. And because there's one more question I want to ask you about it, mm-hmm. and that is, uh, so I know that we have the you have the reading um, on Friday, uh, yeah, in a couple a couple of nights. And um, are, do you have any plans, hopes for it in the future? Yeah, uh, I want to publish it. Okay. Um, I need to now that I'm running through, and I had to tidy up a few lines, and you know, you know, basically polish what's left because you can't tell what it is until it's performance, and then. I, I do. I'm going to submit it to some of the publishing companies. And uh, shameless plug, it is available for publication for uh, presentation. You know, just uh, get in touch with me, scott.peeler at gmail.com, and that's s c o t t dot p i e h l e r at gmail.com. So before it gets published, it's it's available. So yeah. Well, while we're here, go ahead and plug. Yeah, you also do a blog, right? I do have a blog. You still I haven't, I haven't keeping... written in a while, but okay. there's a good. <laughs> there's enough to keep you busy for a, a, a little while. <laughs> Uh, gotta act g o t t a a c t dot blogspot dot com and it's it's my thoughts on theater uh, a lot of it's from uh, educational and community theater uh, my thoughts on things uh, as my experiences have gone on through the years um, and whatnot I was like I said I was an educator for th- for three years so I was writing to my students and sort of out loud to them but just 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 thoughts on things my my favorite thing that's in there and. Anybody who's been in community theater knows that there can be some frickin' drama in community theater yeah. off stage, which I don't understand why. We're all in this together, people. <laughs> but I, I wrote a manifesto, community theater manifesto, uh-huh. and I would encourage anyone involved in community theater to go find the community theater manifesto post and read it. Um, I think a lot of friendships could be saved. I think a lot... Things would go a lot easier because, and, and I've been fortunate to work with a fair number of theaters in the area who understand that we're all in this together. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's some of the when you get in, you run into some people like, well, we're in competition. I'm like, okay, let's say that you know theater A and theater B have shows running on the same weekend. How many people go to the same show two nights in a row? Yeah, unless they're in the family, right? Yeah, that's, that's I mean, a, if it's my parents, yeah, if, if it's your dad, you know, he's, yes. he's there, you know, he just give him a couch, but. Um, <laughs> If yeah. somebody likes a show, they see at theater A. Mm-hmm. Well, then they're more likely to go to B. You say, oh, well, that was good. So maybe this other one is good. So, mm-hmm. so yeah. Brief, brief plug. Uh, Got to act Blogspot.com. Check out the community theater manifesto. It's just, it's an idea. I stole some of it. <laughs> I created some of it. But uh, you know, you know, can't we all just get along? <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that's a really good question to ask. I've been fortunate enough uh, since um, moving back in, at the end of 2014 to Georgia. Uh, I've been in uh, um, 10 plus uh, performances and, and uh, shows, and there was little to no drama in every single one of them. And and that's a huge credit to you as a director because nine of those <laughs> have been with you, um, seven of which uh, were you were directing and you were in a leadership role on. So, um, yeah, at least when I worked with you, Scott, you definitely instilled that in us that that we're all in this together. I always appreciate your directing style. Well, and you. I actually, let, let me take a second to just say thank you to you. I, 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 I Maybe I've said this to you in the past in some form, but uh, when I moved back in at the end of 2014, I had just gotten fired from a job in Alabama, and I was at the lowest point in my life up until that point. And so uh, that was uh, December of, it was almost Christmas, 2014. So then moving into 2015, I was in a absolute spiraling down depression for the whole month of January and into February. And I, I didn't do anything. I was living off of my severance, uh, at at my parents' house. I was a huge burden to them and definitely not proud of it, but it, it, 
it, at, the, at the same time, he, extremely grateful to my parents for the fact that I was able to come back and I had a place to come back to, to kind of start over. And they were more than willing. They welcomed me back with open arms and helped me, um, have a place to stay while I figured the rest of my life out. And I remember mid February or so I woke up and it just hit me that I don't want to live like this anymore. I, I need to get out and I need to start finding out. I need to be myself again. I don't want to continue being depressed and I know it's going to take time, but it's going to be even longer if I don't put forth that effort. And so I thought, what do I love doing? Well, I love to act. And I hadn't been on stage since this was now early 2015. I hadn't been on stage since um, early 2012. So for three years, I hadn't done, I had just been doing a job in Alabama. And I, so I, I that's what I decided to do. I, you know what? I'm going to go audition. Um, I'm going to find a, a community theater. And, uh, and if there's a, it, Whatever auditions are going on right now, I'm just going to go audition for it, um, unless it's a musical. I, you know, and I so, did get him into one though. <laughs> yes, you did. And we'll get into that too. Um, and uh, one of my most fond roles, actually, I ever got to play. But uh, so I, I looked it up and I found New London Theater. It was in, I was living in Lilburn. It was in Snellville. It's only a five ten minute drive away, and it was Harvey. And didn't know the show. Sounded fun. It was a comedy, and so I you know, submitted my name and I showed up for auditions that night. And I think it was, you know, in a few nights, but I, I made sure I went. And that's when we first met. And I remember uh, reading, I really wanted the role of San, Dr. Sanderson. Right, that's, right. that's what I thought I wanted. Right. And um, so I, I remember reading for that. And it's my first time auditioning, doing anything in so long. And I felt like crap. But uh, And then you had me read also for Wilson, uh, the orderly, which is the part that I ended up uh, eventually playing. And um, it just felt good to be able to get out and, and audition. And I know that I didn't even, you didn't even cast me as, no. as Wilson. You cast uh, Colin. Yeah, you know, correct. Yeah. yeah, and he had to drop out. Yeah, and so I remember... Um, I, I don't remember if, if did you do, or do you send out emails if people don't don't get it? Or I, I think it, I call. I, I think I will call and send yeah, it to people. Yeah, and, and maybe that's what happened. I, I, all I know is I, I knew that I didn't get it, and so pretty bummed and about it. I wasn't. I was of course not mad at you. That's not the type of person I am. I understand. That's that, the worst part of being a director. I've had to tell too many people you got beat, and yeah, you know, it, it. If anybody thinks we directors sit there and rub our hands together and say, "Oh, I get to say no," it. There's a reason I drink, and that's one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of drinking, that's exactly what I did uh, that night and the next night. And I just I went back into drinking. I was drinking pretty heavily, and I was just essentially escaping. And I told myself I gave it a shot and didn't work out. Okay, I'm going to go back to this depression. And who knows if I would have went out for another audition. I, I, I have no idea. But I remember waking up hungover as hell. <laughs> and about, I don't know, 10, 30, 11 in the morning, I, I get a phone call. I don't recognize the number. Pick it up, and it's you on the other line. And you said, "Hey, um, I, I need someone to to play Wilson. Do you want the role?" And I, I I took all of me to not like say yes, 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 absolutely, I'll do it. You know, like I didn't want to act like like I didn't want to give it away that it meant so much to me. But I I was of course said yes. And so I I this is a big long way of just saying thank you. Um, even though like I wasn't originally cast, I, that that really I never had any ill will towards that, but still um you trusted me with it once it was once it became you know once you realized you needed someone to fill it and so i came in and i don't think i'd be where i am today i really think that my life would be um a lot worse 
because so many of the friends that I have now, the uh, even even small acquaintances in a lot of the roles that I ended up getting after that and the shows that I were a part of wouldn't have come if I hadn't gotten that with you, well, thank if you. you hadn't given me that chance. And that it really means um, a lot. So thank you. Well, I, 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 I appreciate it. And it's, I still have to this day, I have uh, younger actors who have come in who uh, to this day, I'm, I'm mentoring a couple who they're having some rough times and they'll, they'll always come to me. And my running joke I have with people is, you know, once you're, once you're in the clan, the only way to get rid of me is a restraining order. <laughs> yeah. But it's that, it's that connection. And I, I really feel very strongly about, about that human connection because I, I'm a child of divorce. And what saved me was I had a grandmother and an aunt in New York, who they took me in during when things were bad. And my grandmother looked at me and said, look, this is between your mother and your father. That's it, we still love you, everybody still loves you. So just the idea of having a place you could go to mm -hmm. where somebody says, okay, look, you know, I'm not gonna judge, I'm not gonna, now, you know, when you're, when you're able to hear it, I'm gonna tell you where you've gone wrong, <laughs> yeah, but for now, that. sit down, sleep, whatever, whatever it is. So that, that, that connection is so important and it, it, it actually, it, it goes back to, to acid tongue and Jerry's hatred of litmus tests because nobody's going to line up perfectly with everybody. Nobody's going to agree with everybody entirely. So, okay, fine. You, you share a different political opinion. You share a different whatever. Is it a fist at my face? No. It's a difference of opinion. And that's some of the old school wisdom I think we've lost. You know, grandma used to say, different strokes for different folks. Mm. Let it be. Grandma used to say, you know, different strokes for different folks. Now it's my way or the highway. Grandma used to say, never criticize a man until you've walked a mile in his shoes. Now we, we not only criticize the man, but we criticize his choice in footwear. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so can we all just, can we all just, we laugh, off? but, but that, that's, that's, I, I knew where you were going and it's still, it was still hilarious when you said it, but no, that is, that is sadly true. So I'm just, People, people accuse me of being a little Pollyanna at times, but I genuinely like people. Yeah. I and I even that. like people that other people don't like. Yeah. Um, what was it? Larry King said once, um, everybody in the, uh, 99 out of 100 people in the world are interesting, and the 100th is interesting because he's not. Mm. <laughs> so I try to, you know, what do you, yeah, what do you got to offer me? And, yeah. and, and, and the other thing is win-win um, scenario. I, I, I live my life with, with two questions. One, one, not a question, one statement and one question. One statement is the win-win scenario. How can I make this into a win-win scenario? Um, what can I do to help you that you can do to help me? Some people say that's self-serving. Like, no, it's not. If we both win, we both do well. It's actually a very female style of management. Uh, my wife is a high-level manager. And you'll find that women tend to manage that way. Um, how can we all benefit? Mm -hmm. How can we all benefit? I know that's a very broad brushstroke. Don't don't write in with Dalton. He's a sexist pig. It's not. <laughs> it's a style that's learned um, that we men tend to grow up real competitive and I must win so you must lose as opposed to a more inclusive. And of course, that's not specifically female or male. I'm just using that as a broad brushstroke. Mm -hmm. And then the question I always live with is why not? Too many people live with the question why. The question why is a question that shuts down a lot of paths in life. For example, I'm a parent. If you ask why you should have children, there is no logical reason. There is no logical reason. 
But why not? Well, why not? I think we can handle it. And a lot of things, if you ask why, you can shut them down instantly. Because a lot of things we do in life are not particularly logical or rational. Why not tends to leave those options open, but it tends to protect you. I want to jump off this bridge. Why not? You'll die. Okay. <laughs> Next idea. Classic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And also why not? I feel is a, um, a way of instilling courage in yourself, mm-hmm. confidence um, in yourself or even a group, if that's what you're uh, you know aiming that question at. Um, so I, I really like that because why start all of a sudden instills fear and it instills this idea that you should it uh, doesn't mean you, you should never ask why, but yeah, there's a few times it's 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 worth asking, but mm-hmm. too many people too many people shut down too many things too quickly because of that question. Yeah, but why not? It's just like saying screw it, let's go for right. it. Right, like that was essentially what I said to myself when I went into that audition for Harvey. I mm-hmm. said, why not? You know, I, I'm already not in this show, so um, you know, I, like I'm already just sitting at home. Right. So yeah, why not? Let me just go, and at least I did something to um, that I so I can say that I I'm making effort. And then next thing I know, I, you and I are doing nine different projects together. <laughs> and it's like you said, I, I felt like I got in, invited into that clan. and You didn't let me leave and I didn't want to leave. And I, I always appreciated about you because a lot of directors that I've worked with, they when they're in community theater, it's different if it's professional theater. Right. You want to get the absolute best because you, there's a, a standard to uphold to. Mm-hmm. And, but that doesn't mean there's no standard in community theater. Uh, the community theater standard is the standard that you set for yourself right. and the standard that you set for your, the, f- at least in my opinion, that you've set for any project that you've put on that I've been a part of has been, we are going to make this the absolute best that we can. And we're going to uh, appreciate that we're in this together. And we're going to appreciate each other and we're going to lift each other up and we are going to, um, put on something that people were going to say they were glad they came and saw. And so a lot of the shows that I did with you um, were uh, at least one cast member. It was their first time uh, in doing a, mm-hmm. a, a community theater show. Maybe they'd done theater in the past. Maybe they had never done theater. Maybe they had no experience, but that didn't stop you from bringing them on because I, it's you're a very inclusive person. And I really appreciate that about Thank you because I'm like that as well. And I'm just not in a position of, power like a director is like you were and so seeing you bring these people on um i I feel like a lesser person or someone with ego would uh, and i'm talking about like as a fellow cast member would be like why are they here like why are they why are they sharing the stage with me someone who's done many different shows and you know this is ridiculous and and i never felt that way and i've I never felt that any other cast members that I was ever with in a show that you directed felt that way. It was more like really glad to have you here. This is your first time. Oh, wow. Do you need help? Like learning how to memorize lines? Like do you, what kind of questions do you have? And so that was something that I always appreciated and that is not always, um, you don't see done very often. Well, that goes back to the win-win scenario because frankly, if, if you're new to the process and I show you an enjoyable time, Always in the back of my head, this is a, in community theater, this is an extracurricular activity from people who have real lives. Mm -hmm. So if I can't make it fun, I've failed dismally. So, but if I give you a good experience and you've got any modicum of talent or any modicum of drive and ability, you're going to come back. That's going to help me because now I've got somebody who knows me. Yes knows the tools and hit the mark 
and is going to help me out. See, this is where, and I occasionally get into some good-natured discussions with, with some other directors in the area, is that I don't believe theater is an art. Okay, put down the torches and pitchforks. <laughs> it is an art, but it starts as a craft. There, and I grew up with a woodworker. My stepdad was a great woodworker, my late stepfather. And some of his, one of his furniture pieces, my mother still has to this day, it's a dry sink. Those of you who know antiques know what a dry sink is. <laughs> um, it's gorgeous. It's a piece of art because he honed his craft to a point mm -hmm. where it became art. And to me, theater is a craft that becomes art because you can have all the talent on the planet. You can have all the raw acting ability on the planet. But if you can't memorize your lines, hit your marks, and get along with other people, it's useless. I always say people to say to people, I would rather have somebody, if we use a 10 scale, I would rather have somebody with five talent and 10 dedication than 10 talent and five dedication. Now, you give me the person with 10 talent and 10 dedication, I'm going to own the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But that... That dedication, and the other thing, and I think one thing that goes to, if you talk about you know, having decent experience, I think a lot of directors, especially at the community theater level, some, not a lot, some of them get nervous about what's going on because their name's on the poster. They want to do right, and so they start yelling. My, I, I don't yell. Let's do this well. Let's have fun. So have some confidence. It's community theater. And that's why I often tell people, I said, look, this is double A baseball. Mm. If we were all that good, we'd be on Broadway. Yeah. You know, we're good. I'm not saying. I've, I've seen some community theater productions that rival mm. um, professional productions. But everybody relax. Have a good time. If, if you're not having a good time doing this thing, what's the point? I, um, I never forget. I, I think about this often, the um, saying that, how you said that um, before a show, if you're not nervous, then that's going to be the show that you're. Yeah, that's the uh, one you're, you're going to bomb. Yeah, <laughs> and that is absolutely true. It, whenever I've gone into a show feeling absolutely confident, uh, I, I, I actually try not to. Like, if I feel like I'm confident, I'm like, wait, don't feel that way. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm like, no, it's okay. Like, you should be a little nervous because you're about to go and you're going to perform and things could go wrong. And that's okay. Let that fuel you. Let that give you energy because when you're confident, you tend to let your guard down a little bit and, you, and you're, not as, you're not on your toes as much. And yeah, you're going to go out there and then the next thing you know, you're two minutes into a scene and you're just saying your lines and because it's, it's instilled in your memory. It's muscle memory at right. this point. And you're not really invested in the scene. You're not listening to your scene partner. Yeah. But when you're nervous, you go out there and, and of course, like overly nervous isn't, isn't right. good yeah. either. There, but there, there, is a, there is a middle ground. Yeah, but that's why it's important <laughs> to have that, to be honing your craft because n that those nerves aren't going to cripple you. They're going to fuel you and give you that energy that you need to get yeah. through the performance. Precisely. So, yeah, and whenever we're about to do a show, I, I, sometimes I'll ask my castmates, like, are you nervous? And they'll be like, no, nah, I got this. And I'm like, Oh no, <laughs> no, no, no. I mean like, I'm happy. I'm glad that you feel that way. Like, right, right. please don't tell me yeah. you're saying that like, because you really mean it. Like, I hope you're just saying that to make me feel better. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, let's run through the list uh, sure. of the uh, projects that we have been a part of together. So obviously number one was Harvey back in 2015. 
Then after that was Scared to Death, which was the first uh, radio theater show yeah. that I ever was a part of. Great fun. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, up at um, at the Players Guild at yeah, Sugar back Hill. back before they had their amazing new theater when they were just out in the bowl at Sugar Hill. Yeah. I, I, like, I'm very happy that they have the Eagle Theater now. That's amazing. I've, I've seen it. It's an incredible theater. Yeah, I saw their inaugural show there yeah. uh, for um, the importance of being earnest. Right. Um, that, it, was, it was fantastic. It's a great theater. But I loved being in the bowl. The bowl was fun. Yeah, being I mean, outside. You want to you want to you want to blow people's mind? I was on the same stage as Joan Jett. Well, yeah, it was three years apart, but I was on the same <laughs> stage as Joan Jett. <laughs> That's like uh, Mitch Hedberg when he says, "I used to do drugs. I still do, but I used to too." <laughs> so yeah, scared to death was amazing. That I I love that because it, it that introduced me to the world of foley and doing yeah. sound effects, and I just loved how we. Um, we not only were voice actors, but we also went back and we took turns doing the sound effects for it. And that, that required, there was no drama in that show at whatsoever because we didn't have time for it. No. We had to be in, in sync with each other. And so w- the person, the, the two, two, three people, or even one person up there uh, on the mic doing their thing, and then the one or two people back doing the, the Foley everybody had to be dead quiet listening so that they could make sure that they were doing the footsteps at the same time they were supposed to, the, the wind when they were supposed to, yeah. the setting the cups down, clinking the cups because they're at a restaurant now. And mm-hmm. uh, it was, that, I just, I just did. Uh, uh, and it's interesting. I'll, we'll get back to the list. Sure, in a yeah. uh, at, at McKendry um, this Christmas, I did the 1938 Orson Welles version of Christmas Carol from the Campbell playhouse. It, that is oh the one gosh. that he, the one that he did uh, literally, Six weeks after War of the Worlds. Oh, my gosh. And we got to do that. And it was amazing in this modern time where, you know, we can watch movies where people go to other planets and superheroes fly. Six microphones on a stage, no set, a Foley table, people in period costumes. We had about 350, 400 people in the church, and they were riveted to a story they know by heart because it's Christmas Carol. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Loved it. And I got to play Orson Welles again. So I was, Of course, that was of course. Thing. I remember, <laughs> and we'll, we'll talk, with Out of This World that we did, that was the second to last one we've done together. I remember when you told me about, because actually in Scared to Death, at the end of uh, the show, I remember we all went up. Um, there was eight of us, uh, right? There was four four men, four four women. Yeah, yeah. And then and then you, the stage man. Right, So right. nine total. Um I, uh, I remember at the very end, we all went up and we said one or two lines of a famous uh, radio show. Right. Uh, and, and I was tasked with doing the, uh, something that Orson Welles said. I, right. I can't remember what it was, but I remember studying, listening to Orson Welles talk for two days straight before ever getting to rehearsal when I knew that I was tasked with that one. And I remember doing his voice. And it's been, I haven't practiced it in years. I, I don't remember <laughs> now. It's kind of gr- low and growly a little bit from what I remember. But I remember... I felt like I nailed it, and I'm not very good at impressions or accents <laughs> by by any means. But I tried so hard because I'm I'm imitating one of the most famous filmmakers and, and radio yeah. production and writers of all time, and so it meant a lot to me. And so I remember later on when you told me you were doing Out of This World and and you were going to do War of the Worlds in it, I was like, he's going to ask me to be Orson Welles. <laughs> no, and no, he, Scott's going to no. be Orson Welles himself. <laughs> I but, wanted to be Orson Welles since I was 14. <laughs> yeah, and I got over it quickly because once you cast me as Carl the Reporter, uh, that was the second. If I wasn't going to be Orson Welles, that was the one I would, I would want to be. So I was happy, and I loved doing oh, that. Oh, by the way, you'll have something for your social media soon because I've got one of our mutual acquaintances, Mayor Jones, uh-huh. Yeah, is working on something. Uh, we have a running joke for people who have been in my shows and have either played dead people or, or died. 
Yeah, I've seen yeah, that. The, the Dead Thespian Society. And Mara's designing a crest for, <laughs> for the Dead Thespian Society. That's awesome. I'll, I definitely am a part of that because in um, uh, Scared to Death, I, I my, yep. my character turns into the, the ape right. and, and crushes his dad's head, and right. then he gets lit up by the cops. Right. So, so yeah. definitely you're, you're a You're a multiple member of the Dead yeah. Thespian Society. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, I, uh, oh, in, tr- in tracks, I was dead the whole mm-hmm. time. <laughs> That's yeah, actually the, the next one to get to. Yeah. Tracks in 2015, that was um, the inaugural show for the McKendree Players yep. mm-hmm. at, the, at your church, McKendree yeah. United. Um, it was a one act where we were, um, where we, uh, one by one, people, uh, uh, these characters, they arrive on a subway station and then it's, uh, they're Spoiler all Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, they all start to realize what's going on here because they all come from different. One lady is a, a nun who died in her sleep in Rome and right. or she was in Rome. And, and then my character was, uh, had just gotten mugged in New York and somebody and, else from Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. A, yeah. A lawyer. I think that was Kendall's character. Yeah. Um, and so anyway, uh, they all find out that they, they had died. And so, yeah, I was, that was interesting. That show, if, if anybody's listening and they've got kids in high school, they're probably, I know that show. That show is one of the most produced dramas in high schools across America for like the last two or three years running. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. And the guy who wrote it is a physics teacher in Massachusetts. Cool. Good for him. <laughs> yeah. He's probably getting a lot of royalties. He's, he's, doing, he's doing well with that. I don't think he's worried about, uh, you know, putting gas and yeah, you know, putting just... the snow tires on the car. I don't think he's worried about it. <laughs> he can just focus on teaching physics. Good for him. Yeah. And that was cool. And then you, and, and we find out that when we get on the sub on that train, it's going to take us one, one, one way or the other. Yeah. And then, way, and, it, yeah. and we unfold like, Oh, well I'm definitely going to heaven, but Oh no, I did this one thing. And we all have our one monologue where we talk about what we did that would sure, certainly damn us to hell. And right. That was, um, yeah. Rod really Serling smiled on that show. That that's got a big twilight zone. Yeah. Which is why one of the reasons I love doing yeah, that. Yeah. That was, I, I definitely felt honored that you cast me in that one. That was uh, really, really fond memory. Um, the next one that uh, that I, I did with you would be, let's see, I think that was Our Town in 2016. And we've definitely mm-hmm. talked about Our Town, yeah. which is, I know, near and dear to your heart, yeah. taking place in New Hampshire. Yeah. That was, And that wasn't your first time doing Our Town, was it? It was. It was. It was. Time. That was the hardest show I've ever done. That, I, that was one of the questions I was going to ask at the end of this, so yeah. I, now I don't have to. Yeah, but. It's, it was the hardest show I've ever done because I am, my wheelhouse is comedy, and I found out horror. <laughs> yeah, because comedy and horror are, are directing them is almost identical mm. um, because you're talking about setup and payoff. It's setup and payoff and hitting the beats. Yes. Um, you know, setup, setup, punchline, setup, setup, murder. It, it's the same. Mm-hmm. It's the same skill set. But delving into deep, meaningful character drama is not where I'm at my strongest. So I had to double down and really get into it. And really work to find, because I'm going from you know big flashy stuff you know that I like doing comedies. Yeah, everybody's laughing. By the way, anybody who says comedy is easier than drama, I want to have a word with you outside. Yeah. <laughs> um, but to go to what is arguably a tone poem of a show, it's a gentle, quiet show. And to find that rhythm, that that was work. And that's why I was very glad that that show, I won the uh, Broadway World Atlanta Best Director. Yes, you did. For that show. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm proud of that one. I'm and you should be. One. Thank you. Yeah, I made sure to vote for you. I, was <laughs> like, you. I, I might be a little biased, but I, I know I'm telling the truth <laughs> here, too. <laughs> that, I remember, out of all of these that we've done, um, I would say Godspell, I definitely, I, I put a lot of work into. And that, not just because I, I really 
wanted being Judas was that's uh, a tough role. That's a, yeah, and so I put a lot of lot of work into that one. Also because uh, we only had about a month to put it on. Uh, yeah, that so, was insane. Yeah, but with our town, I knew I could tell you as our leader um, that this meant a lot to you. Yeah. And uh, I had seen our town when I was in high school and honestly didn't care for it. But I was a, I was a, yeah. I, I was a I, high honest, schooler. And, and let me say this to any high school drama teacher out there. Why are you – I know why you're presenting Our Town because it's cheap. There's no set. I get it. Yeah. I don't think high schoolers have any business doing the show. Yeah, I had no idea what was going on. No. There's, but, not, there's not enough time on the planet, not enough trips around the sun to figure that show out. And the other reason I was very nervous about it is my, my mentor uh, who passed away just a year or so after the show – a uh, gentleman named Van McLeod. He was the... Well, that's uh, the coolest name. Yeah, Sorry. Van was awesome. <laughs> Van was awesome. And he was the my first theater teacher, but for the last, how many years of his life? 15, 20? He was the commissioner of the arts for the state of New Hampshire. And a native son of New Hampshire, deeply in love with the state, deep knowledge of the history, taught me everything, I, most everything I know about theater. And I had told him I was doing the show. And I, I felt like I had to take care of this home state cultural gem yeah, for Van. And I, I messaged him after the show and I said, I think I did a good job with it. And he, and he, he messaged back and he said, I knew you would. Oh, yes, that's, <laughs> oh, that's, that's, my heart's feeling something right now. Yeah. So that was, that's, that's great. That was, and then I, I sent, when he passed, I sent a letter to his uh, a note to his widow and I included uh, Joni and I included a note that I said there's a speech that the stage manager gives at the end of our town where someone asks him do, do, do people ever realize what they've got while they're alive mm. and the actual line is the poets and the artists they do some and I said that right now the line needs to be rewritten and it was the poets and the artists they do some and Van McLeod Mm. <laughs> so that was that's there was really a, lot, sentimental. a lot of history in, in that show for me yeah and and it, and it and it bled through in every single rehearsal and i knew i could take every show that i do seriously and i've and i take each one more and more seriously as i go along because i i appreciate the art form each and every even more with every sh- single show that i do um but with our town i knew when i showed up to rehearsal it was time to work mm-hmm. you know not 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 in a in a break your back like right, no. type of way, but no, it's time to get to work and make this thing something to be proud of. And so I really, I really appreciated that. That was that one more than a lot of them. I have very fond memories of. And so. I think, and a lot of people, especially I have a lot of theater friends who don't like the show. And I think the problem is with our town is it's done so often. It's done often badly. Yes. Um, it's easy when a show gets done that many times. People think it's easy because it has no set. People think it's easy to do. Um, oh, yeah, we'll just do Our Town. And as a result, it gets done badly, especially because it gets done by a lot of young actors who, like we said earlier, do not have the time on the planet to understand what, what Wilder was saying. And it also involves a lot of pantomiming, yeah. walking through doors. I remember uh-huh. you you uh, uh, put down the tape and told us, all right, this is where the front door is, and it opens outward, right. and you and it makes sure you have to close it back. And, and then in one of my, uh, as George, when I was leaving to go over um, the day of our wedding, I think, right, uh, to um, when I'm going over to the Webb's household, mm-hmm. To um, it was supposed to be raining, and so I had to make sure that I was cowering a little bit to because rain is falling on my my neck and my right. shoulder, and my head, and and then you and you wanted me to step over a puddle, and I remember I I knew exactly right. where that puddle yeah. was, and and 
the um, and you took it even a, f- a step further with um, the webs the the mother and daughter they had to they were doing something with peas they were yeah, they were uh, what is that called shell, uh, shelling peas shelling peas I was about to say shucking, shelling peas are, uh, or they're or they're working with, no they were snapping uh, snap beans snap peas yeah yeah uh, or snap beans. beans yes yeah they were snapping snap and beans. I remember you you had them for thirty minutes yep. one rehearsal just, we all just went and ran our lines <laughs> yeah. in, the, in the corridor <laughs> and they were on stage just learning how to mm-hmm. how that was supposed to do to go because well, it's every detail. I was fortunate to grow up with uh, Marcel Marceau, the, the all-time great mime, the French mime. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you could watch Marcel as his character Bip, and you honestly believed that whatever Bip was holding, Bip was it was there. You just couldn't yeah. see it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I just did uh, the show um, last November, Tuna Christmas. We that was we had uh, like a, a skeleton set where we we certainly had. Um, uh, we had the tables and, and we had a Chris, we had Christmas trees and um, and we had stuff on the walls, pictures and everything. But any cups that you were drinking sure. from, any flask that you had drink, poured some whiskey into your coffee and the coffee mug, the refrigerator, all of that was pantomimed. And so it just brought me right at all that learning that I did from our town. I knew exactly. I, I made sure that I put that cup down in the same spot and I picked it up and I knew where the handle was. And yeah, so. Well, and that goes back to, as I was saying, my mentor, Van McLeod, who he and the people, he also was hiring the theater teachers into the school I was attending. We had a trimester system and we had an artist in residence each trimester. And it was Van who taught me early on. It says, if you can't act on a blank stage in a black turtleneck, you're not acting. So that's where, and I have, I've gotten into discussion with people, oh, you know, but sets and scenery and all. Yes, that's important. But at the, at the base of the craft mm-hmm. is the actor alone with nothing. And if you can get your message across with that, the rest is icing on the cake. The rest is to help the audience with suspension of disbelief. But that's, yes. to me, that's where it all comes. That's why I love Black Box Theater. And that's why Acid Tongue is actually very much a Black Box show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So are you guys going to be, um, is it memorized? No. Or you said you only had a few rehearsals. It's a stage reading. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have it memorized yourself though? No, but um, 10 years in radio, I can make you think I do. <laughs> <laughs> Professional bullshitter, yeah. pretty much. Right? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, <laughs> pretty much. And to anyone who's out there who is an actor, um, if you ever want to just do an exercise, and too few actors have the ability to do this. I know actors who, I love cold read auditions. And I know actors. My favorite. Who, yeah. I would prefer that. I know people who hate them. Here's the thing to do. Whatever bit of text you have lying around, if you're like me, an old guy who still gets a physical newspaper or a magazine or a piece of junk mail, pick it up and read it out loud and record yourself and listen back to it. I mean, it literally doesn't matter what it is. I can make, you sound, I can make it sound like I've, I've seen it a million times. How sheer unadulterated repetition. It's no talent. It is no talent. I still have radio shows from when I was in high school at high school station. <laughs> Cringeworthy. Repetition, 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 repetition. Yeah, and, and it amazes me. Uh, a lot of actors that I speak to or even people that I, uh, when I tell them that I'm doing a podcast and, um, and, I, and they begin asking me questions and I tell them, yeah, I spent a lot, most of my time is actually spent editing it, not talking sure. with people. And, sure. and they say, oh, I could never listen to my, my own voice. And now a non-actor, I completely understand right. it. And, um, but like if an actor says that to me or especially on like, if you're, when I go to acting class and we're on, and we're on film and right. we're getting filmed that day and we're going to look it back uh, if we're on tape and we're going to look at, uh, look at it back. I hear a lot of groans like, Oh, I hate watching myself. And I do get it because I was that right. way. But if you want to get better, you have to get over it. You just do. Here's, so here's a, here's a, t- here's a technique back from the old, the, the prehistoric days of radio. And this is one reason my voice work is what it is. 
when, and I, I, I know they have the tech now, it's, I'm sure it's all computer. I have not been in an actual working radio studio in a long time. But back in the day, we had what was called an air check machine. It was a cassette recorder that was wired to the microphone switch so that when the microphone went on, the tape started recording. When the microphone went off, it stopped, it paused. So four hour air shift on a music station, for example, you may have 25 minutes of patter, maybe 30 out of the four hours, because you're just, well, that was the latest from Bon Jovi and here's Motley Crue, you know, yes, I was on the air in the 80s. Um, <laughs> and then you go home and you've got 25 minutes of yourself to listen to. So literally every shift I went home listening, we had cassette players in the car back then, um, <laughs> listening to myself, Every time. Every time. Screwed up there, screwed up there, screwed up there. That was good, that was good, that was good. And I'm guessing that you got better and better and yep. better until you were pr pretty much a master of that craft. Yeah, now I, now I can do it. Yeah. But it, it's sheer rep. And, and I love, and whatever you do, I don't care what you do, act, sing, play an instrument, um, go look up, and I think I, re I do reference it in the Gotta Act blog. Just go to the Gotta Act blog and search Dave Grohl. From Foo Fighters. Yeah, and I, I quote him. And Nirvana, and Nirvana as well, and yeah. whatnot. And the Muppets. He's so good in the Muppets. <gasps> you ever seen the, <laughs> I have not. Yeah, actually. he played. I'm not um, a big Muppets he, fan, but I, I will in check the, him in out. The movie, in the movie called The Muppets, mm -hmm. he plays um, a guy in a Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem ripoff band. He plays Animal, the character. Oh, of okay. <laughs> it's hilarious. But anyway, <laughs> he has an article that was quoted in, of all things, Sky Magazine. And so they had to edit it out. On airplanes? Yeah, Delta <laughs> Sky Magazine. Yeah, okay. And he basically said, Get out there and suck. Yeah. Get out there and suck. He says, that's what we did in Nirvana. A bunch of us got together in a garage with our instruments and we sucked. And we kept playing and we sucked. And eventually we didn't. That's the way that I, <laughs> that's the way I, I, I live my life now. Um, when it came to this podcast, when, when I first had the idea to start this, I was, of course, nervous. I, I knew that I, that I had it in me to do it, and I knew that I had enough great friends like yourself and, and the other guests that I've been blessed to have on and will have on. I knew that there was something there, but I was certainly, there were doubts, sure. as there always are going to be, of is anybody going to care to listen to it? And maybe they won't, you know, but that, I couldn't let that stop me. No. And, uh, and it was also, you know, what if my first one's bad? What if my, you know, what if, what if I can't even get it off the ground? And then I actually was scrolling through Instagram one day and I came across a quote that said, um, you know, your first song is going to suck. Yep. Your first monologue is going to suck. Your yep. first podcast is going to suck. Your first mile is going to be hard. Yep. But you can't get to the 50th podcast. You can't get to the 50th yeah. song until you get to that first one. So just start. Just and, start. Yeah, so ju and, you know, and just I think do it. Was, I, I believe it was Wayne Gretzky. Um, if not, it was Michael Jordan. I think it was Wayne Gretzky. You know, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Wayne Gretzky, yeah. Or yeah. Michael Scott. From right. uh, if you, are you familiar with that in the office? Oh right. I think right. in the very first episode he has behind him, he has uh, on the on the board it says you miss 100 percent of the shots you don't take, and then it and it says Wayne Gretzky, but then under it it says Michael Scott. It's like, what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's but it's true, and mm -hmm. I mean I had a radio career. It didn't end up as I wanted it to. But I, I'm 55 years old. I can't sit and say, well, if only. I took my shot. Yes. I am comfortable in the fact that I took my shot and especially I have a lot of younger friends theater will do that to you and you know I see them they're like mid-20s well I haven't made anything of myself yet I'm like yeah I was married at that age but I happen to know my wife since I was 14 mm -hmm. but I just finished a play at age 55 it's the first full-length play I've written I'm 55 <laughs> 
there's time. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's another thing that I see where it talks about like, what do you like? Don't feel bad if you aren't there at 23 or it might even be 26. And it talks about how JK Rowling. Oh God. It, yes. You see, have you seen that? Where yeah, it's Oprah and everybody. Yeah. yeah. And Oprah, she was in, com- she hadn't even done her first commercial at 23 no. and, and JK Rowling was, uh, or uh, Tina Fey was working at a YMCA at 23 mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and look how famous and, and successful they are now. It, it, it time age, has nothing to do with it. And, and let me let me put on my grumpy old man hat for a minute. Please do. Um, there is a great quote, and I splash it over social media when I can. It's Theodore Roosevelt. Is it the com- daring greatly? Comparison is the thief oh. of joy. And social media exacerbates yeah. that. And yeah, it does. Let me tell you, because academically, what I what I hold as my degree is communication, not electronic communication, but human communication. That is my wow, degree. Cool. And the idea is that I studied under a gentleman named Josh Meyerowitz who introduced the concept of we have front stage and backstage personas. I have this persona now, which is sort of a middle stage persona because I know I'm with Dalton, I'm with my friend, but I'm also performing for an unseen audience. So this is Scott Peeler slightly edited. Yes. This is a, this is a different version of Scott. Mm-hmm. The version that I'm going to get when I go home with my wife is, an, is that's backstage Scott. Mm-hmm. If I'm... Friday when I'm at Live Arts doing doing acid dunk, that's front stage, Scott. But the idea is we now, because we think we're privy to everybody's every minute, we think we're seeing backstage. When the fact of the matter is Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, whatever your preferred social media platform is, and I'm not anti-social media. Anybody who follows me on Facebook, they're like, will you please shut up? You're <laughs> killing my feed. But... We're looking at a heavily staged, managed persona. Heavily staged, managed. And I love the expression is don't compare your outtakes with somebody's highlight reel. I wish I was the guy I was on Facebook. Right. That guy is funny and insightful and, you know, never makes a mistake because he edits. But that to me, we're going down a path, Stop, especially to my younger friends, stop comparing yourself to what you see on social media. And I learned that lesson from the great supermodel, Beverly Johnson. She, God bless her, she published a book. And in one, two facing pages, full-size facial photograph, one page was Beverly Johnson, no makeup. Next page, Beverly Johnson, after makeup and through the photo shoot process. Page one, you wouldn't cross the street to say hello to this human being. Stage two, you would crawl through broken glass just to be in her presence. Mm. Heavily edited, heavily stage managed. And it's gotten easier to stage manage and edit now. I mean, you know, how many filters have you thrown on your Snapchat today? Yeah. So please stop believing that. <laughs> that's, that's some. My name is Scott good. Peeler and I approve this message. <laughs> and, and welcome to his <laughs> TED Talk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You've just been lectured. And, and no, I, but. And, the, and I'm holding my tips of my fingers together, which means this is important. If you've never seen the video, every TED Talk ever, go look for it. Oh, it? I already, like, I haven't, but I can just imagine. Yeah, it's, it's brilliant. Every <laughs> TED Talk ever made. It's, I forget who did it, but it's brilliant. <laughs> that's great. And what you said is abs- that's that's so great. And that's something that I, I tend to forget myself. And there, there are times when I have to take a break from Instagram. I, I mainly do look at it for inspirational quotes like that and nature photos. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes I see like models and, and I'll see um, like really like really big guys that are in the gym and they've got all these muscles and six packs and everything. And, and it makes me. Uh, think to myself like, why don't I have that? Or you know, why don't why don't you just buck up, Dalton, and and, right. and work hard to to be like that? And then uh, 
and, and I have to remember that like they're there now. Yes, but they it took them a long time and a mm-hmm. lot of a lot of de- dedication and determination. And even at the end of all that, this picture might be edited. I'm not saying that they right. don't look like that, but even so, it might even it might be even further than they really are. Right. And I have to remember this this quote that is it's really simple. It's that every master was once a beginner. Sure. And so that's that's twofold. That that helps you to not compare yourself to someone who is a master of something or in incredible shape or a fantastic actor, actress or singer or, or musician or what have you, just because they're there and you're not right now doesn't mean that you can't be because they were where you are at one point. Yeah. There are savants, you know, at things, sure. but they're, that's very, very rare. Yeah. And it's more so in like mathematics and like piano. And, and, and that's, stuff. that's, <laughs> a, that's a, that's a very American attitude. And it's one thing, um, we see it sometimes in academics, the idea that, children you know children in school will be well i'm not good at math and if you go to japan the idea of being good at math no you work at mm-hmm. math yes yes there are some things that are innate ability i will never be able to run as fast as usain bolt that is a reality it's my physiology it's my age. he is always going to be faster than i am it doesn't mean i can't become a faster runner than i am now mm-hmm. um but this idea that oh well those people they're good at it or they're lucky. Um, but it's that idea that somehow it's either a gift or a lucky or a lucky break. The idea that somebody actually busted their butt to get where they're going. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's become alien, sadly. Yeah, and it, and, it, and it would do, it would serve a lot of people well, including myself, to remember that that person put in a lot of time and effort into getting to where they are. And that, that is something that I could do myself. But I guess it's that mentality of, well, I want it now. Right. You know, I want it right now. It's very, very American. I, I can't speak for the rest of the world, but it definitely feels American. Yeah. Like we have fast food yeah. and we have instant streaming available. Right. And so it, if we want something, we want it now. But when it comes to something that you're going to have to work hard for, like to be a master of craft, to be um, an expert podcaster, to be uh, mm-hmm. you know, a great piano player, that's something you're going to have to work at. And so it, it all comes down to just appreciating the journey and understanding that there is going to have to be one right. and that there's going to be ups and downs in it. And it's just a matter of how much you want it and if you're willing to stick through and, and, and get to that point. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. I, I, that's something that I, I feel lucky personally that I, I understand. Um, that doesn't make me, I feel a better person. It just helps me to not be so stressed right. <laughs> about things, right. you know? So, um, yeah, anything that you, that you want, you're going to have to really work, work hard for. And so it's really just a matter of if you're willing to do that. Yep. And, and of course, and I will admit, there are some times when you can put in all your hard work and do everything and it's not going to work out. Yeah, but that, at least you tried. You, you, you gave it a shot. You, yeah. you say, hey, you know what? I tried. Didn't make it. It's not on me. <laughs> I thought growing up that I was going to be a professional NBA player. Sure. And then I stopped growing in eighth grade <laughs> at 5'6", five, 5'7", five, or whatever I am. I haven't, I haven't measured myself in a long time, but... That didn't. That still didn't mean that I couldn't make the NBA. There are shorter people sure. in the NBA. Um, the most recent one I can think of is uh, Jose Barea. He was on the Dallas Mavericks 2010 NBA championship. He was five six. Yeah. But ultimately, it wasn't just that. It was that I wasn't even the starting point guard right. uh, on the high school team. Right. I was second string, and so um, I could have continued working hard at it. But I realized that that's not what I wanted to do. It's what I thought growing up I was going to be. And I just had to come to the realization that even though this is my one sole love, right. that I'm going to have to find something else that I'm going to do the rest of my life. I'll always enjoy basketball. I'll always be good at it. Right. I'll always be one of the better ones in a pickup game, but I'm not going to be yeah. <laughs> playing in the NBA, making millions of dollars off of that and endorsements. So, And, and, a, and a, note to, uh, a note to parents on that, because you reminded me of something. I've, I've seen 
a few kids come through. If your kid is good at something, you're not going to be able to stand in their way. Mm-hmm. But I've seen too many kids who, you know, school team, travel team, this, that, and the thing, and then they get out of high school and they put the ball down and they never pick it up again because they're sick of it. Yeah. Don't don't be that parent because if your child is truly gifted, is truly interested in something, like I said, you won't be able to get out, get in their way. They will bowl you over mm-hmm. to get to their passion. Look for the passion, encourage the passion. I would also say, if they commit to trying something, don't let them bail before the season is over or whatever. You know, you made a commitment, stick to it. Then if they get through that commitment, like piano lessons, you know, they get through the season of piano lessons, I don't like it, mom. Fine. Mm-hmm. But that, that was what we, did, what we did with our daughter. And she, she got to try a lot of things. But I see, I see too many burnouts, especially in, in sports. It just burned out. And it happens in, in, in performing. You know, well, we're, we're teaching them to this lesson and that lesson and the other thing, you know. Now, if the kid wants to do it, like I say, stand back. Yeah, absolutely. But don't force it. I've seen too much. Yeah, and, and I, I also feel that way about schools mm-hmm. and, and the educational system is that, um, and, and I, I'm no expert on this by any means, and I could be talking out of the side of my mouth, but it seems like everyone has to follow this, um, this same path. Yep. Everyone takes... Matt, you know, everyone takes pre-calculus their, you know, say sophomore year and they take the first, they take it the first semester and they take it the second semester and then they, and then junior year, they go on to take, um, you know, algebra or uh, trigonometry or statistics or something like that. And so, but the thing is a couple of those students over there in the back, they're bored as hell because they've right. already, they're already, yeah, they're well beyond. Yeah. So why make them have to sit there and trudge through all of this with the rest of the students that are taking longer uh, mm-hmm. with it when they should, they could go ahead and move on to something else and they could continue progressing. Sure. And that's, that always bothered me about school is that I, I didn't understand why we were all doing, going at the same pace. Right. And that doesn't mean that you leave anyone like behind. It just means that some people are better at math and should go on to the next one quicker. Right. And I, I, so that was, that was me. I was always bored in algebra. Mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't understand why I was doing it. And I had to take it three times. I had to take <laughs> algebra one, algebra two, and then I had to take it again in college. Right. Um, that's the biggest thing is having to go through your core classes in college. I didn't understand that principle or else I would have um, tried to knock that out in high school. But and I get into college and then that was a, a big part of why I didn't like college so much because I'm, why am I, I just did this a year ago. Why am right. I having to do algebra right. and I'm having to read Lord of the Flies for the third time? <laughs> What's going on? And so um, I, I think it's, a, it, like you were saying, it's about recognizing ta- where a student's talents and interests are sure. and letting them pursue them. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. Instead of just forcing something down their throats that they're going to resent you for. Yeah. And I, I have one of the soapboxes I get on with that is it's amazing how much we will play. And I, again, I'm a huge sports fan, huge, huge sports fan. And, you know, we'll pour all kinds of money into, into, into sports. And then people will look at, will look at say performing arts, whether it's, or fine arts, music, whatever. And well, you know, that's, that's foolishness. You know, where's the future? Well, but then in sports, we say, well, it teaches teamwork. It teaches this, that, and the other thing. Well, that's the same thing that theater does. Yeah. So the and idea, band and orchestra. Band, exactly. I mean, most of the school I was teaching at, the, I think the la- when I was there, the last 10 valedictorians either came out of the theater program or music or both. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea that there's, you know, what's the future in sports? Your kid is not going to make the pros. Statistically it's speaking, like a 05 percent chance. Right, it's <laughs> yeah. ridiculous. And so, yeah, so your kid likes to be on stage in high school theater. Odds are they're not making it to Broadway. Yeah, the odds are about the same. But the lessons that are taught 
are the same and, and are as valuable, whatever their passion is. Mm-hmm. It, 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 I believe in the job market, they refer to that as, as, as transferable skills. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It, uh, now, real quick, speaking sure. uh, on... Sp- I want to stick on sports real fast because sure. this is a hot topic right now. Mm-hmm. And I actually haven't really been able to talk about it with anyone. Um, I know you're a huge baseball fan. Yeah. You're a Red Sox fan. I'm a morning Red Sox fan. Yeah. M-O-U-R. I am in mourning. Yes. Whereas I am a New York Yankees fan. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, no, you know, I, I've, I've, I've always loved being a Yankees fan. I was there in 2009 when they won the World Series. So um, I watched every single game oh, in fun. Times Square. Now I'm I'm a Braves fan first. Right. I became a New York a Yankees fan when I lived in New York. Sure. And um, but that so that being said, it was great to see them win in 2009 because they beat the Phillies, mm-hmm. who are the Braves' arch rival. Right. right. There's a few, you know, the Mets and then right. occasionally the Marlins. But ultimately, seeing them not not only win but to beat the Phillies and and in five games, right, oh, right, felt good. But That's sweet. Um. Anyway, you've definitely been more blessed to be a Red Sox fan than I have lately, yeah. or a Boston sports fan in general. <laughs> yeah, we're obnoxious and we have the rings to prove it. Yeah, you have the right. I'm never. I'll never <laughs> knock you on that. I'm not here to. I'm not here to <laughs> make you try. Try to make you feel well, bad because I'm just because jealous that pe- you. People were ragging on me for the Patriots. I'm going. Yeah, but the Bruins are on top of the NHL right now, so I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> it's like no, it's too many options. <laughs> um. Yeah, so uh, the Astros, uh, the the whole uh, oh. cheating scandal. Yeah. What is your what are your thoughts on that? M- mainly, first of all, I mean, yeah. cheating in baseball. Yeah, because I forget which great old manager was his game cheating, ain't trying. Yes. so I get mm-hmm. it. It goes on. It it happens. Where the Astros went wrong, and where it looks like the twenty eighteen Red Sox may have gone wrong. Um, no, nobody's proven anything on that yet, but it, it doesn't look good at all. Well, let me tell you real fast. When you said you were mourning, are you talking about the fact that they were impl- in, no. implicated in that or Mookie Betts? That Mookie Betts is okay. wearing a Dodgers uniform. Yeah, that's, gotcha. That's killing me. Okay, so sorry. Yeah, go on. But, um, you know, the sign stealing has always been part of the game of baseball. Always. Oh, that's what people do. That's mm-hmm. why catchers run through a set of five, five signs. Right. But the MLB came down and said, thou shalt not use electronic devices mm-hmm. to do this. Yes. And then people kept doing it. That's, I have no problem with people trying to do things that are not in the rules. I'm a Patriots fan. <laughs> I get, you know, people have been yeah. on me for years and people are like, well, that was cheating. No, what Bill Belichick did was, it was, it's not mentioned. And, and I thought the ultimate revenge was when uh, Mike Vrabel, the Titans was, was uh, taken delay a game penalties in the playoffs this year, which Belichick did and laughed. And Belichick was furious. It's like, no, you taught him that. Yes. <laughs> so so metagaming, things that go out, you know, it's not cheating. It's just not defined. It's learn the rules like uh, like an expert so you can break them like an artist. Yeah. 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 And so I don't have problems with people trying to steal signs, but literally when your governing body comes down and says, you can't do it this way. Yeah. That's when you stop. Yeah. That's and when they you didn't. stop. And it's, it's a... To me, it's it's as big a taint on on that era as steroids was. It, it, Absolutely, it's painful as a fan. It is painful as a Red Sox fan, even though they had the 04, 07, and thirteen titles, to look at twenty eighteen and go, yeah, maybe not, maybe yeah, and 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 no one's even really paying attention. As far as I I see, no one's really paying attention to the uh, the eighteen Red Sox, but they are. Definitely paying attention to the seventeen Astros. And yeah. the fact of the matter is, there were two other teams in that postseason that could have been World Series yeah. champions and, and more than likely would have been if they weren't doing that. Yeah. And that is my and, beloved and, Yankees and then the LA Dodgers. Yeah. And if you look at the if you look at the Astros batting averages um, away from home and in their home park, 
I'm guessing. I, I don't, but I'm it's guessing it's ridiculous. It's insane. Mm-hmm. The difference. I mean, there are some of the players there, 100, 150, 200 point difference. Now, I'll buy 75 point difference road versus home just because of conditions. Right. But yeah, I mean, it's. But that's. Yeah, come on. Too much. <laughs> and, for, and for them to not be, not to just outright apologize for it. And so, so my, my two questions for you is mm-hmm. the first one, do you think that the players should have, should be uh, punished? Uh, and and then the other one is, do you think that the titles should be vacated? I don't think you can vacate titles because it opens up a large can of worms. Um, how many titles are we going to take away from the 90s Yankees for the steroid era? Yeah. Um, how many titles are we going to take away from the San Francisco 49ers because Jerry Rice was using stick on his gloves when it was it was illegal? I didn't even know he was doing yeah, that. Yeah, he, he admitted to uh, a few years ago. Wow. Um, <laughs> wow. So I think it opens up a slippery slope. But the apology... Yeah, that. I don't think the players should be punished too much, but but heads have to roll. More heads need to roll than have rolled. Yeah, it, it was just the general manager and I yeah. think one other. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, and they were just like leader in leadership yeah. roles. But to act like the players didn't, the way that the um, the I, I forget Jim, some maybe I, I could be wrong, but the the guy who who owns the Astros, the way he made it seem about the the players is that they um, they were just kind of bystanders in the whole thing. And, Please. <laughs> yeah, and he's acting like they're not grown ass adults who know what right. they're doing and could take a stand against something like that. Yeah. But at the same time, I get it. How I get why certain ones wouldn't if they were rookies or they had just gotten right. brought up from the minors or they were just in their first second year there. Yeah. But but the ones that have been in the program for many years, yeah. they should have. They know they, how, they know how it works. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, it just it it really taints the whole game of baseball. And it and it, it I'm already an on the fence fan. I don't watch a lot of games. I pay right. attention to the postseason. I just there's so many. There's I would 162. actually rather listen to baseball on the radio. It's one thing. One of my old. I enjoy I, it too. I love baseball on the radio. Yeah, I if I hear it. it on the radio, I I I'll listen to it for a little while, then I'll, I'll turn it on to something else. But I, I like it too. Yeah, it's it's just there's it's a you hear a the throwback. crack of the bat yeah, in the it's, background. It's beautiful. Yeah. So <laughs> anyway, that, I just wanted to talk briefly about that. Um, did you have any other thoughts on that? No, nah, I think that's that, that's like I said. I'm in mourning for the baseball season. I'm just yeah. I'm, I'm like, okay, I'm done. You know, when, you know, I'm just gonna hang on to see how the Bruins do, and maybe the Celtics. But I'll pay attention. <laughs> I'll pay attention to baseball if things get interesting. I love the Celtics. Have Kimball Walker. He's one of my favorite oh, players. They're they're so much fun. I actually, um, I don't think I ever told you this. I got to broadcast a basketball game from the Boston Garden. No way. Yeah, um, I was in radio. I was at. Uh, I had just been called in to do uh, sports reporting at uh, WCAP in Lowell, Mass. And I said, "Well, I have to do play-by-play. I don't do play-by-play." I said, "No." First week I'm down there, the uh, Lowell boys basketball high school team makes it to the state semifinals. So we're going to broadcast the game. I said I told you, I don't do play-by-play. Get somebody. So a friend of mine from the station I just worked at in Keene, New Hampshire, for those uh, keeping score at home, Keene, New Hampshire, where the uh, exteriors for the first Jumanji movie with Robin Williams were Oh, filmed. no way. So, cool. Anyway, so it's Keene. <laughs> um, and I brought a guy down who did play-by-play for us back in Keene, and I got to sit high above courtside where the legendary Celtics broadcaster Johnny Most broadcast up through the Larry Bird era from I was like two seats two boxes down from where Johnny did his game wow in the historic Boston Garden yeah it was high school basketball but it was like this is far too cool yeah absolutely <laughs> when was this um I want to say somewhere around 88 89 somewhere cool. in there did they win the game I th- I don't remember <laughs> that's all right 
<laughs> I've actually gotten to do broadcasting myself, or I guess announcing, if you will. Um, the job that I did in Alabama, it, it was doing um, fun runs with with, uh, with kids in elementary schools, and that required us being on the microphones, me right. and a couple of other guys I worked with. And my first year, I was more of a background guy. They they let me say a couple things that were rehearsed on the microphone. But um, after that, I became a team lead, and it was my responsibility to be right. the main one on the microphone. So I was winging a lot, of, winging it a lot of the times, trying to right. keep everybody hyped up. As far as like someone who enjoys performing and public right. speaking, like I do, yeah, that was a lot of fun. Getting to be out there in front of all these parents and kids, the whole entire school, and I'm the one on the microphone. Everybody's oh, cool. waving their hands if I tell them to, or they're all shouting whatever I ask them to shout. You know, in a in a G-rated way, <laughs> right, right. Um, so anyway, after one of the, uh, the the runs that we did, I'm cleaning up. I'm high-fiving some students and telling them they did a great job, asking them how they enjoyed the day and talking with some parents. And this one lady comes up and she says, hey, are, would you be interested in announcing for uh, for my my uh, my son? He's a part of a quarter midget league, oh, uh, cool. a quarter midget racing league, in which they, they race in, in cars that are essentially like one-eighth of, a, of yeah. a NASCAR. And they go around a track that's one-sixteenth of a mile. And I was like, yeah, I'd love to do that. So I got paid a few times. I went on a Saturday um, uh, for it was they did it like every other month. And so I went for six months and uh, and I would announce the races. I would I would announce what what uh, kids were about to race. And then I would say, you know, all right, and they're coming around the back stretch. And I said all things like that. And that was a, that was cool. one of the most fun things I've ever gotten to do. That's fun. Yeah. Just show up on a Saturday, have a good time. Everybody's listening to my voice. And I and I had the know how by that point to to set up speakers and set up microphones right. because I did it at my job. Oh, and cool. so and they needed someone to do that as well. So they didn't have to. I was able to do both. And so I got paid for both uh, both jobs. Cool. So that was a lot of fun. So let's uh, we'll switch gears here and uh, let's go back to talking about uh, let's finish finish off. Yeah, the list. we've been veering we, off on the list. The last thing we were, we talked about was our town. Yeah, and, and yeah, no worries. It doesn't matter if we went off on a, a tangent or, or ten. Look, um, a white rabbit. Um. <laughs> Alice in Wonderland. Show. There we go. I love it. Um, Paper plastic was the next thing we did. Yeah, that was fun. What a great show. That is that is the cutest little show in the world. I absolutely adored it. I was so happy to be a part of that. And to be able to play three different characters, yeah, that that's one of my cool. favorite characters ever. I got to play that cowboy. Yeah, and I loved you. What you do before um, you give us all all the the character analysis sheets mm-hmm. uh, was it Stella Adler? Her 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 twelve nine uh, questions. No, um, Uta, Hagen. Uta, Uta Hagen. Sorry, Uta Hagen. yeah, Uta yeah. Hagen. Um, yeah, and it was nine questions, right? Or is it? 12? Yeah, the Uta, nine Uta Hagen's nine questions. Yeah, and then I have a sheet actually. Um, that beyond that, but Uda's the basis of it all. And it was like basically like, what's your character's background? Where were they born? You know, what are their thoughts on life? What are their thoughts about themselves? Yeah. Things that, as an actor, you you, you should yeah, really you do if you want to. Should have in your back pocket. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I just loved how um, I loved that I had the opportunity to do that because my characters are so ridiculous. And the yeah, cowboy, he only he just buys a single grape every time he comes to the counter. <laughs> and so I decided that he was from uh, he was from outer space. And that uh, I can't, and that that he was he was an alien in in human skin and that grape it, he lives off of one grape a day and so that was his reasoning for yep. going there yep. and that drove that character but and, and that anyway. show is interesting because it's one of those things when you're doing goofy you have to own it yeah and we and, all did. and every and the other thing that happens and, and and that role and it was you know in a show like that you always have to have one person who's sane and, and that, that show had that mm. and it's and the example, Jenny played that perfectly. she did she really Jenny was 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 so good in that and it I, I call that role the Kermit the Frog role yeah because it's the one sane character where everyone's bouncing around and actually the the greatest live action example of that type of portrayal 
it to me was the late Graham Chapman of Monty Python as King Arthur in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I just watched that for the fifth time last yeah. week. Everything is going around and him. You're right. He's just the straight man is the most underrated role in mm-hmm. comedy. And uh, folks, if you've never listened to the 2,000-year-old man, Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner, comedy records of the 60s, they're all over YouTube. There's an animated special they did, but go go find the 2,000-year-old man. And Carl Reiner okay. gives a master class in how to be a straight man and set up. The only, the only straight man I can think of who comes uh, that close is um, Bud Abbott. In, in, to Lou Costello in, in Abbott and Costello because mm-hmm. Bud Abbott if you look at how he sets up Costello in Who's On First it's brilliant one of the greatest skits of all time uh, yeah I mean arguably arguably the greatest English language comedy routine ever yeah I mean just fantastic <laughs> so we had Paper Plastic yeah well actually um, I, I don't think I don't know if I've ever mentioned this to you but every time I see this man I think of you uh, every time I see him, I think of you. Not not the other way around, because when I see you, it's you. But <laughs> whenever I see John Cleese, I think of you. I, I have gotten, I have, that has been given to me since I was a teenager. And that should be an absolute, <laughs> it, it's, it's I, you huge. take it as a, it's a, huge compliment. a compliment. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Cleese is, Cleese is one of the people on my comic, Mount Rushmore. He's, he's phenomenal. And he should be, yeah. <laughs> His work in Faulty Towers. That is Faulty Towers. If and people, I, I'm amazed at how many people L-T-Y. don't know that show. Yeah, you don't. I talk about it all the time because of you. You told me yeah. when we did um, Harvey. Yeah, because that's a comedy. You said, yeah. folks, go watch Faulty Towers to understand timing. Yeah, and as Dalton said, F A W L T Y. Faulty Towers has been called by I forget. It's on YouTube. It's on. It, it is on YouTube. Um, it has been called the greatest English language farce ever presented, and it is brilliant. It, it is side splitting laughter. Yeah. Like seriously, that. And if you only have time to watch one episode, go look for one called "The Germans Are Coming." <laughs> yes, that one. Dude. Oh, <laughs> golly! <laughs> that and and his the woman who plays his wife in that she's excellent too. Yeah. I forget her name, but and the just, woman who plays um, Polly the maid that's Connie Booth who co-wrote yes. the show. Yeah, she she, uh, she and Cleese were involved at the time. They were mm-hmm. and uh, they wrote the show together. She's gorgeous uh, and and brutally funny. Brutally yeah. Funny. <laughs> yeah I, yeah. So anyway, thank you for uh, getting me on to Faulty Towers. <laughs> and yeah, John, when I was watching uh, the Holy Grail just last week, I was thinking uh, every time I saw John Cleese, I was thinking about you. And my favorite part of uh, that whole movie is the um, is the when he's running up to the uh, the to the castle and the two guards are like looking out at him and he's like ah and then it cuts and it cuts back to them and you look back and he's really far away and then it cuts to them and they're just like looking at each other and then it cuts back and he's really far away it cuts to them and then it cuts to him and then it comes back to them, and all of a sudden he's right there on him right and he and he's and he and he slices one down and then he goes in i just that that the the cleverness of the that the monty python crew and how yep. they 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 took movies and, and, and the tropes that we know and they just turned them on their heads and, and made us realize how funny they were. And um, it was uh, it was interesting. And they also gave us a word that we have now to this day on the internet. They they are the reason we call junk email spam. Really? Yeah, the, the spam. Oh, spa- like the spam, spam a sketch. lot. Yeah, well, the spam sketch. Oh, I don't know. If you go look up the spam sketch, your education is incomplete. <laughs> it's, it's certainly, when I get around you, I feel so uneducated, but not in a bad way. I feel, I feel, I feel motivated to get more educated, yeah. you know, because of all the facts that you throw out. I love it. Um, so, yeah, I, I just wanted to mention that to you, John Cleese. 
Um, so yeah, so we talked about paper plastic. Um, it's such a fun little. That's one act, right? Yeah, it's one act. Yeah, yeah a little like one act. Twenty five minutes long. Yeah, it was great. And then, uh, so the next thing would be the Siberian Orchestra. Trans Siberian Orchestra. Tra- sorry, yeah. Trans Siberian. And that was uh, that was was that Christmas Eve? No, no, it was Christmas Attic. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was and when I was a McK- train conductor. I was a train conductor. Yeah, that's a role I have played. But yeah, um, I felt super honored that you'd asked me to do that too. They, um, yeah, I've had a relationship with the gang at Trans Siberian Orchestra for years mm-hmm. um, because back in the late '90s, I actually, from the why not file, yeah. Um, I told I said to my church uh, worship leader at the time I said, uh, well music leader I'm sorry the music director, Karen Smith wonderful human being, um, I, I said we there's this band this new band Trans Siberian Orchestra and they they have this Christmas album and I think it would make a good presentation I'll find out if we can get the rights to it and she was she said go for it which okay careful what you ask for and I I got in touch with them and I said could we do this and they said sure. And it became a tradition at our church. And now I'm saying, don't think you can just go do a Trans-Siberian Orchestra album at your production. You they have worked with people in the past. I don't know what they're doing now. Um, you go find them. I found them. You can find them. But they will let people do them. And it's been a huge success for that. And so that was, we did this, that was when you were in, it was the second album in their Christmas trilogy, Christmas Attic, which great story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was, for me, I mean, it was a, it was a rather small role, but it was so cool to be able to be a part of that and to hear all the music and um yeah mckendry's got a stupid talented band absolutely they're, i mean they're ridiculous <laughs> those guys are fantastic so after um after that one uh next would be godspell and at the beginning of 2017 i had just gotten married yeah. and you had uh, the guy who was playing judas he he had to bow out because he got a, a paid yeah, gig right yeah it was his job was ramping up yeah i remember asking him for can i get a couple days and i didn't take that long i just needed one because I thought about Judas, and obviously, I mean, you, the the appeal the appeal of working with Peeler. No, <laughs> no, but but um, obviously, I wanted to work with you. I'm always happy to work with you again, if you ask. Um, but I sat I sat there and I thought about it because it's a musical, and I was like, I'm not a musical person. <laughs> the, up until that point, the only other musical I'd done was Damn Yankees, and I didn't have to sing. Very, right, I was in right. the ensemble, but with Judas, I knew I had one. Uh, I had, I'm going to have a solo. I'm going to have one song that's just me and Jesus. But ultimately, I it was a why not. Uh, thing right. in 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 my in in my life where I I, th- I thought uh, I could I could learn I can get better at dancing I can challenge myself to actually have to sing um, and then uh, more than anything the character of Judas um, yeah. if it, I've been asked before what character would you ever want to play um, you know if you had your choice and your dream role and mine actually is the devil because I yeah. think there's so many levels to that character oh, sure. if you let depending on the writing of course you can be very one note but. I think the devil can have a lot of layers to him. I um, think there, I think there are stage adaptations of the devil and Daniel Webster. Really? Yeah. Then I need to go look those yeah, up. Yeah, I need to look at it. Yeah. So, um, wow, cool. Um, so, uh, in 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 that same vein, there's Judas who betrays Jesus, and and there's just there's so much there to that character, and I realized how difficult that was going to be for me, and so I had to do it. <laughs> you know, if, if it scared me. If it scares you, go do it. And so, right, right. so I took it on, and and um, that was we we got together that whole cast. That was such a tight cast. And also, I loved that you had cast Joseph Simpson as Jesus, yeah, a black sure. Jesus. Yeah, I'm there. I'm for it. It was it was it, it was <laughs> funny because I had a friend of mine uh, who went to a theater conference and was joking with me because he said some semi professional director was bragging about 
how how with it he was because he had the daring to cast a black Jesus in Godspell. And I'm like, I'm a self-taught community theater director, and I had that idea a year ago, <laughs> and it was done in the 70s, by the way. So please stop bragging, patting yourself on the back. Yeah, exactly. No, <laughs> I, I have a term that I, I use. You know, there, there's woke, and then there's woke. Which is fake, fake woke. woke. Yeah, yeah this, this dude was woke. <laughs> and you're absolutely right. Someone who's woke is someone who wants you to wants you to know that they're woke. Right. Like I, I don't. I someone I was I was talking with another uh, a lady who directed me in, in three shows actually last three or four last year alone, and um, she and I were having this big conversation. And at the end, I, I just kind of we had a big heart to heart, and I told her a lot of things that I, that were going through my head at the time, and she just looks at me and she goes you're woke for your age. <laughs> and, and that's how I knew that I am woke because right. I wasn't, that was not my intention was for her to say that to me. Right. You know? Well, it's like the, my, my favorite expression from the world of faith, which is an Amish expression. Somebody asked an old Amish gentleman and said, are you a Christian? And his reply was, I don't know. You'll have to ask my neighbor. Wow. <laughs> that's deep. Yeah. I like that. So I try to keep that in the back of my head. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, it, it's not what you think about yourself. It's yeah. how you're being an example, not, not presenting yourself because you can be fake in it. Yeah. But just how, how I'm an you, actor, I can give you whatever I want. Yeah. But th that's not, I, I think that's, that's really big. You can, I like when I can tell that about someone is that they want to be a good person because they want to be a good right. person. They don't care if someone else thinks they are yeah. or not. They just want to be a good person. Char character is what you do in the dark. Yeah, character. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's when, when no one's looking. So Godspell was fantastic. We, we That whole cast, it was right in the middle of Christmas break. We worked yeah. through it. A, a couple people had to miss a couple different um, I mean, and, and, and poor Jack Green, he, he practically concussed himself when he had to miss dress rehearsal. Yeah, right? <sighs> like that was two nights before yeah, the, yeah in nuts, Tech Week. But, uh, and we all pushed through and we, and we supported each other. And we learned those, we learned the lines, <laughs> we learned the, the music, and we learned, uh, we learned the dance numbers. And I just had so much fun doing that. That was... Um, the most stretch that I had felt up to that point as an actor. Yeah, that was. So, uh, if if, if you know, my Godspell, I always describe it as as a bunch of preschoolers on espresso. That's in a, in a Looney Tunes cartoon. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's how and that's how it came off. I love it. And and whenever I tell people I was I, mean, I was in Godspell, especially like fellow actors, like oh Godspell or oh you're in that. I'm like hey whoa like yeah. you weren't. Have you been in Godspell? No. Oh, then like don't knock it please because. Yeah. I actually really enjoyed that. Yeah, it, like, can, it can be, a, and again, it's one of those shows. It it gets done a lot. It can be done badly. I've seen, I've yeah. I, I've seen bad versions of it. But, and that's probably what turned those people yeah, off to it. But I love the show, and the reason I love that show is because of the number um, "Alas for You." Uh, that's and that's why I don't like Godspell Junior. For you. Yeah, that. That's why I don't like uh, Godspell Junior because they take the number out of it. It's what gives the show what fangs it does have. Yes, you know because. It's an angry song, and I, I like it. And Joe killed oh, it. Oh, he killed that thing. Oh, he was so yeah. great as Jesus. Oh, yeah. Like, I, I genuinely felt, I allowed myself to, to be vulnerable and to feel, uh, like, like led by him. Like, I was his follower, mm -hmm. and, which is, you know, what they all, yeah. all the disciples were to Jesus, and which made it even more wretched in my own heart when I had to decide. There was, there's, there was a, a period in, in, in the show when... Judas has to start questioning Jesus and his and his allegiances start to turn and going through that in my mind was so much fun. Yeah. I, it, that's that sounds so like bad, but it no. was so fun to be able to feel yeah, those. No, you did you did some incredible work in that. Really Thanks. Good. I mean, it, I feel like if we had had another month, I feel like I could have yeah. given even more, but we had one month and I <laughs> I gave you all I could. <laughs> you it <know>? worked. <laughs> but that, I appreciate you saying that. That, would, that meant a lot to me that you had asked. 
and trusted me to come in, and especially the, given the fact that I don't do musicals. Yeah, no, it, it, it worked. <laughs> so um, after that, we have a couple more. This one uh, would be my favorite, uh, Out of This World. Out of This World was was a lifelong dream come true for me. That was uh, with the Players Guild at Sugar Hill. Mm-hmm. And Another radio show. Radio show. It was the last show they did before they moved into the new theater. Yeah. And it was in the, in the Sugar Hill City Hall in the council chambers, and... I got to be Orson Welles, and that was that was a lifelong. And dream. I didn't. <laughs> no, I know. I, no, it's okay. I love that we uh, we did Mars is Heaven. Yeah, Ray, Ray Bradbury classic tale. And 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 a note to my to, to my fellow theater people. Yes, uh, one of the great loop. The reason we like to do radio dramas. One of the great loopholes in American copyright law is that any radio show broadcast prior to I believe it's seventy three, is technically in public domain. Mm-hmm. Uh, they weren't under copyright. That's why theaters do them. They don't have to pay for them, but. I am very proud of the fact that that theater paid Ray Bradbury's estate for Mars is Heaven. We didn't have to mm-hmm. because the X-1 script from NBC Radio in the 50s was is technically in public domain. But it's still Ray Bradbury's story, and I knew Ray Bradbury's people from an earlier project. They never got off the ground, but I went to them and said, we'd like to do this, and you know, it's, it's Ray's show. Yeah. It, you know, it's Ray's story, and they said, thank you. People don't do it. And they cut us a bargain and a half. Yeah. They were just thankful to get that the right thing was done. And I've, I've always felt very, very good about that. And by the way, even though I just said all those radio shows are technically in public domain, you can look it up. There's a lot of vintage radio sites on where they go into the legality of it. Um, don't touch War of the Worlds because the the uh, uh, Koch, uh, the Howard Koch estate has kept that one. Since it happened, mm-hmm. so yes, you have to okay. li- you you have to <laughs> license War of the Worlds. <laughs> and and, and we one. did, yeah. Don't just think you can go do it. Yeah, the, and so that one was just so much fun getting to do um, Foley from Mars is Heaven, and then getting to be right next to you on stage as Carl the reporter um, with you um, as Orson Welles. Poor Carl. And this, yeah, <laughs> he just gets he gets phasered or whatever. He just gets a, the heat ray. Dis- yeah, the heat ray disintegrated. Heat ray, yeah. That was. Yeah, I died on stage with that one yeah, too. Yeah, another another DTS. Uh. So I could talk I could talk for days on that one, but I know that we got to wrap up soon. So let's uh, go to the final one that we've done that was recent. This was Black on Both Sides, yeah. Alan J. Haw's uh, series that he's yeah. written, produced, directed, starred in. Yeah, fantastic. And you have uh, a very very major role in this. Yeah, which was funny because, um, and again, this the connection, the human connection. Um, years back, I directed uh, Alonja's sister, Shawnee, who's a producer on the show mm-hmm. and in, in the show, and yeah. you've had her on, yeah. on the podcast. Yep, she's been a guest, and Alonja will be soon. Good. It's, I'm having everybody from Black and Both Sides, That's and fantastic. I was in it too, so I'm already you know part of it. <laughs> and well, Sha- I directed Shawnee in uh, Children of Eden. I and, saw that. Yeah. I loved it. And, and Shawnee was so good at it. And back, the uh, Alonja's first web series, and it's worth looking up, it's on Sika TV, S-E-E-K-A dot TV. It's also, this one's also on YouTube, which is uh, Blue Collar Hustle. Mm-hmm. Uh, won a couple, won awards as best web series at the Minnesota Web Fest, won quite a few awards. And Shawnee got in touch with me and said, uh, we need you for a little role. What do you need? I said, what's it called? It's Blue Collar Hustle. What's it about? I said, she said, uh, it's about the Atlanta hip-hop scene. And for those of you who've never seen me, I am a very <laughs> Caucasian human being. Okay? <laughs> yeah. Really white guy. And I said to Sean, I said, have you looked at me? She's like, no, trust me, we need you. And they got me to play uh, Harvey Harvey of uh, 
nondescript records, a country music uh, label. And, <laughs> and Harvey finally realized that he needed, to, he needed to get a rapper on his label. And as far as Harvey was concerned, rappers were just telling the truth of their things, just like Loretta Lynn was telling the truth about being a coal miner's daughter. And Alonja actually let me write a little paragraph in there. That was cool. And um, what was funny is I realized that Alonja successfully predicted Little Nas X by about six months. Because we had this country music guy wanting oh, to get right. a rapper, and then like six months later, the little Nas X blows up. Yeah, like, you're good, Alonje. <laughs> um, and so that role, which I was in season two, episode eight, uh, is the big part of that. Yeah, and I remember you showed me that whole yeah, episode. Yeah, that's a great, a great scene. You. Great scene. And then um, Shawnee Alonje came to me and they said, "We need you for the next series." I said, "Oh no, the small role." They're like, "No." <laughs> okay. And so black on both sides, I play Cyrus Alexander, the CEO of Legacy Wireless, a uh, company here, you know, a fictional company here in Atlanta, uh, um, wireless, you know, cell phone store. And it's hilarious because the promotional materials tend to have my face on it, which is weird. Yeah, That's I know. Strange. Yeah, seeing that, <laughs> yeah. I was like, okay, you know, here's this, here's this very white guy in a business suit and tie standing on the other side of Alange is a guy in a dashiki, <laughs> and then here's Alange in the middle, right. and Alange is brilliant. Um, and Alange was actually one of the reasons I got Acid Tongue finished. Because I looked at him, I said, "Here's a here's a single dad in his 30s who's cranked out three seasons of television. Why can't you, Mister, at the time, you know, domestic? I was a stay at home, you know, with a wife who's who's out there making all the coin. Why can't you figure out how to write 90 minutes worth of theater? Yeah. And so Alonji and I pushed each other. It was funny because I'd show him a piece of the play, and then I'd see Alonji's social media, and he's like, "I'm writing like mad." And I go back to him and say, "Did I?" inspire you a little it's like yes <laughs> so we, we we pushed each other that's so. the beautiful thing about acting and with <laughs> with film uh, i've seen a lot in film and even with uh with theater is that y the collaboration yeah. and and the um, inspiration that you get yeah. from fellow actors and writers and directors it's really cool and so i was i was so happy to even be thank you for um suggesting that i uh you know to shani and alanji that i come on and get to be the small part with you to be your, your, um, rookie uh, <laughs> cops by your side in, in the flashback scene. And, um, and to be able to watch that whole series, uh, I, I've just, it was, it was a real honor to be a part of it. Yeah, right. And it was like you, you said a little bit earlier, how it's, it's not for us, me or you like necessarily it's, t it's not telling our story. Yeah. And but Elijah is an, un, you know, he calls himself an unapologetically black filmmaker. Yeah. And when, that's and, perfectly fine. And I'm sitting there going, great. I can help you tell your story. Yeah. Beautiful. Happy tells, to be a part of it. Tells a beautiful story. It um, does. Season, season two, episode nine of Blue Collar Hustle. I'm going to forget the title of the thing right now, but go look it out. It's one of the most beautiful, life-affirming. Okay. Write it down. Uh, and I'm not in it. I'm, not, I'm nowhere near it. And, and But I'm recommending because it, it deals with the, the death of a beloved character in the show and a funeral. And Alanje has written one of the most moving pieces of film I've ever seen. It's just, really? it is so life affirming and so beautiful. Do you mean like the eulogy that someone gives? Yeah. Or no, just the whole just the remembrance whole... of a man's father. And it's, it's so heartfelt and so beautiful wow. and so honest. It's, 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 um, it's beautiful. Yeah. Season two, episode nine of blue collar hustle. Wonderful. Hi, Dalton from the future here. Scott wanted me to let you know that the episode he's referring to is actually not Season 2, Episode 9. It is, in fact, Season 2, Episode 7, and it is titled, They Reminisce Over You. It's absolutely beautiful. Check it out. All right, take it away, past me.
I'm looking forward to the second season of Black on Both Sides, yeah. which you are you're going to be in as as well. Right? Yeah, Cyrus yeah. is still there, and we're uh, we're filming. We start filming the last weekend in February. That's amazing. It's going to continue to to win awards, and uh, yeah, Alonjo just he, picked up a screenwriting award. Uh, the at the Oniros Film Awards. Really? Which are, I, I didn't um, know that. Yeah, they feed the Internet Movie Database. They're part of the awards that feed IMDb. And I'm not Al- surprised. Alonjay just picked, they do a monthly awards, and Alonjay just picked up uh, uh, Best Screenplay for Black and Blue Sons. Oh, man. <laughs> so, yeah, people, go see it. Hey, not not just because Scott's in it, and I'm in it for maybe like a minute or two. <laughs> go see it because it's worth seeing, and it's yeah, really it's well it. written and, and performed. By the way, my wife is in it. Tamar, oh, right. Oh, my gosh. I forgot. Tamar's in it, too. Yeah, she is. So, everybody is in it. <laughs> um, I just, that's fantastic. It's really, oh, and I remember seeing Kat and Adam. Yep, they're uh, in, in the Angela Van Tassel's in it, too. She was in that. Yeah, yeah. who who else? Uh, a couple of my students. Uh-huh. And um, I, I, I'm a very famous lawyer in Atlanta. I'm not going to say his name, yeah, but no, you'll recognize okay. him if you see him. Wow. <laughs> It's a great series, and um, it's just really cool that you got to be a part of it, and I got to be a part of it, um, and, and even just there's, there's great way. there's great work going on out there, and it's just to me, I had to explain to my mom. She's like, "What is a web series?" I'm like, "Mom, think of it as the community theater of television." <laughs> yeah, you know, there's there's yeah. brilliant work being done out there by people who are just passionate, and and work just they have to get their story out, and mm. I'm I'm just happy to help them get it out. And and the the amount of effort and collaboration that Super goes human. into it, and the having to line up people's schedules and and all the money that goes that, that's involved to yep. just get it up and running, and for him to do that because that's his passion is just absolutely fantastic. Yep. I mean, and now there's there's an example of of someone who said, "Why not?" Yeah, <laughs> that's a great that's a great ending point thank for uh, today's episode. Scott, thank you so much again for My coming pleasure. on. It was good to see you again. All right, and um, I look forward to the second season and just and also Acetong, and I look forward to everything else that you have going on in the future. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dalton. You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs>